Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, and this is going to be episode 196 with Kyle Preston, who is a composer. Kyle's work is just outstanding. It's really beautiful. The first time I heard one of his tracks, I ended up listening for hours on repeat. I shared it with a bunch of my friends, and I knew that I had to have him on the show because his work is just outstanding. And I thought that a lot of you would appreciate it and enjoy it as well. And it was always interesting for me to know, you know, who's behind this amazing music and this amazing work that uh, is inspiring me. And it was great. Kyle's a natural. He, we just had a really great flowing conversation and got a hat and it off to him. We had a really great conversation. And for being two strangers that have never talked before, it was a, it was a really great podcast. I really enjoyed my time. So big thanks to Kyle for, for you kind of coming out and, you know, sharing your time with us. We talk about all kinds of stuff on this episode. We talk a bit about, you know, one thing I love to talk about um, and just getting to know people is where did this, these things come from? Where did, where did uh, Kyle's inspiration and his muse come from? So we talk a bit about how he is, um, his early career started off as, you know, getting focused in, in uh, as- astronomy and astrophysics and his curiosity and love and wonderlust of the stars and, and just, the, you know, finding answers to curiosities when that, within that. And then he found out, that it wasn't really his passion. Um, and so music, he came back to music and also playing you know, in bands in high school like most of us have and, and wanting that dream to, to be a musician for life didn't necessarily pan out for him. So he came back to it later on and it's working out great for him now. And he's finding a way to balance his life and um, dedicate himself to his craft. And it's really great because uh, you can tell that music is what creates you know happiness for him, which is awesome. Uh, we talk a bit about uh, email management in this episode as I have a couple techniques that I share with Kyle and also yourself uh, if you're listening and just kind of how Kyle stays focused in this really wild day um, and just focusing on you know what matters most to him and what he's planning on doing for 2019. So it's a great episode. It has a great flow. I'm very thankful to have Kyle on. This is going to be episode 196 with composer Kyle Preston. Let's begin. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I can imagine you're probably busy and um, I always appreciate it when, you know, people are able to shift their schedules around to do the podcast because it is, you know, just a thing that we do out of passion and and, our, and a longing to connect with other people. So um, I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's great to be able to come on and share process stuff. And I've, I've learned quite a bit over the last few days listening to some of the interviews you've done. So hmm. definitely happy to be part of it. Awesome. Yeah, we, we, we I appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners do as well. I came up upon your work from, we just did a podcast with Tian, um, who's did these really beautiful hmm. nebulous um, renders and galaxies and stuff. And he used one of your tracks and I was like, so spellbound by it. I think he used a beyond the rainbow or one of those tracks mm-hmm. and it was so incredible. And I was like, man, who's this? And then, um, I hadn't heard of you before. And then I listened to a bunch of your music and I was like, I told Andrew, I'm like, can you please see if Kyle would be willing to come on the podcast? So this is, I just, this is one of the, my favorite things about the podcast is being able to have an on, honest conversation with people that do amazing work that inspire me as well. So yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. I, I actually just saw uh, Tian uploaded 
a new video like an hour ago and it, it's like I just got a 4K monitor and actually it was like one of the first things I've seen on this monitor and it blew my mind. It was so beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, his work is incredible. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. And it matches the music that you make really quite beautifully as well. So it was like a perfect match made. I think he has an, uh, an acute sense of pairing music to his visuals as well, which is great. Yeah, well, it's funny. We were just talking to about how I, I listened to a little bit of him on the podcast yesterday and I didn't realize that we had such similar interests. And I, I, I started messaging him afterward. I, I couldn't believe that, like, I think he heard some of the astronomy and the physics stuff in the music. And I think that's probably what attracted him to it so much. That's that's interesting because I was reading about your about section and I was seeing that your background is in astronomy and astro uh, astrophysics. And then that kind of connected me to what he was doing as well. So that kinda, it's kind of funny how everything comes full circle and it kind of reinforces one of my main core themes in life in, in regards to art, which I think is so much of what we do is just uh, another form of language, you know, uh, making music or visuals and pairing these together is just another form of communication. It's a, it's a higher form beyond language, beyond our simple, you know, words that can do. And, and I think that there's a lot of underlying things that connect them. And that's a perfect example of patterns that are repeating and connecting basically. You know, totally. Which, uh, yeah. Be really interesting. It's an interesting background though, for a musician to, to have that, um, was that something that, you know, as a child, was it something that you're curious about? Like, you know, ast astronomy and looking up at the stars was something that your parents encouraged. How did that come to be? Yeah. Um, you know, growing up, I was always fascinated by space. Like I think a lot of, uh, kind of scientifically minded people are, and it's not really something that I think I took seriously until I, I dropped out of school a lot. Um, I think I dropped out, it was like two or three times. Oh, and uh, at one point, like I had been in bands forever and I sort of just got frustrated with um, trying to, you know, to make the band lifestyle work. <laughs> yeah. And so eventually I just sort of took it seriously and it was just like, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to study what I actually care about. And, you know, I was always I was pretty, pretty decent at math and it just kind of made me want to, you know, take a risk and take a chance and do something really hard. And I loved it for the first couple of years. And then you know, after getting through school, I kind of, as soon as I got my diploma, I was like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I'm going to go right back to music. So sure. that's kind of what happened. Was it just the dry aspect of like the formulas and what was it that um, deterred you from enjoying the process? You know, it was definitely the dryness of it. And, um, you know, academia is very political and yeah. I kind of, I don't know, I think I realized after I graduated that if I you know, whatever I end up wanting to do, I'm going to have to work really hard and I'm going to have to tolerate things that I probably, you know, I, I don't think that I personally just wouldn't want to deal with. And I was like, there's only a few things I really want to do that with. And music has always been sort of the stable thing for me. Hmm. And so I, I just, that's, I feel like I chose that side. And then I've been, I've been riding that train ever since. Good for you for following your passions. I think it's a, it's a crime. If you don't, because you're just kind of cheating yourself in the world against you, your will of wanting to do something that you're, you know, passionate about. I think that it's mm -hmm. actually really important because you're right. And I think the academia and all the political stuff is such a turnoff in it. If you look back in time to so many of the brilliant minds that have shaped our knowledge and our base of knowledge have 
been so against the anti-establishment of these political systems and trying to shake them up and, uh, and be against the grain, you know? Um, totally, yeah. Almost all of them are. And it's like a testament to the fact that it's just, it's not supposed to be where you live as a, as a thinking person. You actually are supposed to live within yourself and, and, and bring forth all those thoughts to the world and your proposals to, you know, like what your contributions are to humanity. Totally. I, I feel like you have to be part of the world. You know, you have to be part of the existence that other people have. And I think academia sort of very consciously goes out of its way. Not, not everything in academia, but a lot of it kind of goes out of its way to, to shelter and protect some of those things. Yeah. And I think it, you know, that can be good, but I think you're, you definitely sacrifice, um, you know, connection with other people, which is, you know, for me, music has been the thing to connect with other people. So I, I didn't, yeah, I, I, I just couldn't sever that so, so easily as other people could, I guess. Yeah. There's a weird kind of, um, there's a weird thing that happens. It's not for all, uh, I'm not trying to label uh, academics in general, but there's a lot of weird things that happen within the ego and just people and the way that they, their patterns of thought and then just kind of the constructs of the whole tenure process and all that stuff. There's a, yeah. a couple episodes of Joe Rogan's uh, podcast as of recent that were really quite disturbing and shocking and really com comedic about these guys that were writing these papers and they were completely asinine, uh, but they were feeding this like liberal um, kind of like bull crap about like, I think it was like dogs, like raping dogs in the parks or something like that. And they were talking about oh like God. it was a hate crime or something like they were just going off on these like weird like tangents or they were using like Mein Kampf, which is Hitler's book. And they were replacing it with like feminist words and stuff and then using that as paper and like for verbatim word for word kind of stuff. And it was getting like approved and appraised and stuff in it. Again, it was just testament that like um, the the academia, the world of that isn't necessarily um, just because it has a label on it doesn't mean that it's actually like efficiently working, you know. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not as bulletproof as as a lot of no. people make it seem. I think. And Far from it. I I do remember reading a statistic that kind of it definitely threw me. Um, I I think I was in school when I read it. It was it was something along the lines of. I think it's like less than half a percent of all papers ever get referenced a year after they're published. Oh, great. And so like it just made me think like so everyone's just talking in a vacuum and no one's listening. And those ideas are like probably never going to get used or matter to anyone other than like the five people that wrote it. And it's just that was so <laughs> disconcerting. Yeah. Uh, learning that. That's good to know that, though. I mean, it's it's the odds. Right. And I think it's just. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what your decision was and how much I agree with it. And anybody that's listening to it's like, it's so important for you to follow your passions. I think as long as you're not harming yourself or other people, because I always think about that when I say that and give that kind of blanket advice, I always think like, well, what if they're a serial killer or something? You know, like, cause <laughs> yeah, there's always one exception to <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I always think like, well, what if they're that kind of person? Okay. Why? Well, that's bad advice to say, follow your passion. Right. So, <laughs> but, yeah, sure. but in general, I think it's so important to do that because it's, it's, it's so important to show the world like who you are. And that's mm -hmm. a perfect example of like, you know, those, these kind of papers where people, um, I imagine it takes tremendous effort and fortitude and, you know, to get these papers out and it just, it's almost like it's just an asinine way of just checking a box. Basically it's, it's like saying I worked on it just to work on it, you know, rather than, 
you know, really eff- like putting an effective like um, addition to humanity in a sense, you know, so. But, yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, you know, there. and also like just to sort of coat to coattail on that, um, I definitely remember after graduating sort of feeling like I wanted to be part of of adding like a net gain to the empathy in the world. Mm. And I feel like music is a really, really good empathy generator. And that's that's definitely something that I wanted to keep uh, pursuing. Mm. That's and, a great attribute. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, once you learn that, it sort of changes the way you approach everything. And yeah, that's super valuable for me to to, to realize. Yeah, that's a that's beautiful. And that's awesome. And it's really great because your music can be paired with so many different things. I was just playing this game. I finally got a PlayStation and I was just playing this game um, called Journey. Have you ever played the game Journey? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful game. Amazing. And the music is so important in it. You know, I yeah. honestly think in ratio, like when really good movies uh, exist, it's like an 80% of the music is 80%. The music's carrying 80% of the experience and the rest of it's it's the visuals and, the, and everything else kind of carrying it as well. I have yeah. such a, an adoration and, and for great music and great compo- composition because it, it takes you that f- to that further step. You know, it's so important. Yeah, yeah. it's I mean, and Austin Winter is a tremendous composer, which which definitely helps. But it, it's. I it's that was one of those games where it felt like the um you know the whole was greater than the sum of its parts sort of thing. Yeah. Where it just it was an experience. It just and I like I could still uh, I'll probably play it now because we've been talking about it and it'll <laughs> still be just as good. Yes. Now yes. as it was when it came out. I just like it was it was one of the first times I've ever played a game where I was like, "Oh, this is a new thing." And I've been wanting to play it for years now, but I just like I, I refused to get a console and I didn't want to do all this stuff because it's just like, you know, that the, the money of it and then just like the risk of me being addicted to a thing that I didn't want to. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's my hang up, too. Yeah, but it's actually um, it's just I'm so personally, I'm so driven by so many other things that games are just kind of like the dessert I have whenever I'm able to. It's not like a dessert I bloat on as of now. It might be <laughs> later on, but it was it was an amazing experience and it was like experiencing a poem and to harken back to the idea of what you were saying about um, music and how important it is um, to create an empathy or establish more empathy in the world. Like I felt like journey as an experience was, it was just that it was like experiencing a painting that was involving and moving and transcending and uh, evolving. And it wasn't about like being frustrated or having to press a button at a certain time. It was about, just experiencing a world that was beyond ours. And I just felt like it was, I did a lot of research and I just kind of studied up on the creators and I was just so fascinated by it all, but it's such, it's such a great experience and I could really see your work paired really well with the game as well. And it looks like you've done that as well too. I need to check that out. The game. Yeah. Th- Prune. Thanks man. Yeah. yeah. There was a game called prune that I worked on a few years ago that, um, it was, uh, I guess it was sort of promoted as like a digital bonsai tree. Uh, simulation, but you sort of go through, um, there's a narrative going on in the background and, you know, I I was able to provide music that, um, sort of created a soundscape that you could get lost in, which was, that's kind of the, what, that's always the type of project that I try and and go after and and work on. Mm. And so that was, that was a total joy. And yeah, I would, I would absolutely love to, to work on projects like that forever. 
That's awesome. Well, I'm sure if you continue doing it, it's going to manifest. It's just kind of how it works. So <laughs> thanks, man. That's awesome. No, that's really cool. And when I heard your music too, it, it made me really think about a lot of musicians and, and music that I really love, but it also had its, um, it had your own voice, which I uh, found really special as well too. Cause yeah, there's, I felt like glimpses of like, um, Philip Glass and mm. obviously it was, it was brilliant. And, um, I think there's quite a few different things, like even kind of what Max Richter has been. Max Richter, I guess, is how you pronounce his last name, but he's been doing. Yeah. Um, his music's really quite beautiful as well, and it's it's really ethereal. I shared it with a couple of my film friends as well, and he was saying that um, I think it was like Seth Rogen or something. We sent it over to one of those guys, and they said that they really? couldn't stop listening to Beyond the Rainbow. I was like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's so cool. Music's a gift, you know, and you never know who's going to um, consume your product and your work because <clears throat> it's on the internet and anybody can just kind of click a link and experience it, which is interesting, you know, it's really fascinating. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, you noticed the Max Richter thing. I'm like kind of probably a little unhealthily obsessed with some mm -hmm. of his music. I, I think he's remarkable. I think he's like one of the best composers around right now. Yeah, he is remarkable. I love his work. It's He's one of the only people that I think that could have made Vivaldi's music even better, which is like, I know. Yeah. Oh my God. When, when that album came out, I was sort of like, I was like, man, I really just wanted a Max Richter record. I don't think I want Vivaldi. And then I heard it and like my head exploded and it was yeah. so good. He's a genius. Yeah. My wife surprised me with getting, we were out in, um, I think, yeah, we were in France and she surprised me with tickets to see him in a string quartet playing mm -hmm. in a, like a little cathedral. Uh-huh. It was insane. It was so yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Well, we we just went and saw him actually here in Seattle. Um, I think it was like two months ago, two and a half months ago. And yeah, it was the same experience. It was just like, oh my God, it was so good. Was you must have been show. like a kid in a candy store then, huh? Quite a bit. Yeah, I, I remember saying to my wife as we were walking out, I was like, I've got a lot of work to do. That's <laughs> like, beautiful. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. That's so cool, man. That's great to hear that though. And that's cool. Like you took it that way, you know? Rather than being like, because it's so easy to be envious or to mm. be jealous or to to be to go into a negative place, but to be inspired in a humbling way is just shows that you're going to get there in your own word in your own terms, you know. Yeah, I, I hope so, but I, I appreciate you saying that. No, I think so. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I've been doing these interviews for a long time. I've been studying other artists, and I consider myself one as well. And I just look for patterns and ritual patterns and like it's because we're basically just pattern creators and we just continue the pattern basically <laughs> and if you look at different patterns within people and how they create things and the prolific people that create things a lot of it comes down to pure curiosity pure passion and love for what it is that they're doing and mm -hmm. another thing is a humbleness to, to to understand that they know nothing and they're continually learning those are the best people that contribute the most i find within the artist community at least from what yeah. i experience so and I'm sure yeah, Max I, is probably very similar too, you know, so. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, he probably listens to Bach and just thinks, man, I, I got to go back to work. And well, I think and everybody just, does, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, he's the man. Yeah, yeah, he is the man. So you mentioned like an unhealthy obsession or unhealthy um, like, uh, like love of his work. Where do you, mm -hmm. how do you draw the line with that? Because I find that as well within myself, like when I'm really interested in an artist and wh where do you think that goes? Like, because... I call them like silent mentors, you know, people that influence you yeah. beyond, but they're not people that you know personally. Mm -hmm. So how do you process that? Well, it's like 
I think one of the things I realized, uh, especially about his music, was I don't I don't think it was Vivaldi. It was one of the records that came on after that. But I remember the first time I heard it, I started like I could I knew where he was going to go before I would even heard the first song for the first time. Yeah. And I was able to like predict what he was going to do and then hear it. And it was still amazing and it was still awesome. And that's when I realized I was like, OK, I, I probably I probably should uh, back off a little bit. <laughs> Just because it's, I don't know, it was a little freaky. Like it was sort of like, it's, it's like more than just completing someone's sentences. It was like, uh, completing their emotions sort of thing. Beautiful. And so you're, I mean, a, you're it's, synergy yeah. then. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. I, I hope so, but. Succinct. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you get that with everything though. If you're, if you're that close to it, you kind of see the patterns in it. My question sure. now is like, how do you, because that's a beautiful place to be, right? Where you were inspired by somebody who's brilliant and you could basically kind of dance with them mentally. Um, Mm -hmm. so then it's like, the question is, well, where do you go from there? You know, like how do you process that next stage basically or that next phase? How do you go Mm -hmm. beyond that within yourself as a creative, as an artist, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. I, I, I feel like I'm not ever really consciously paying attention to stuff sometimes when I'm working on it. I just sort of, I feel much more, uh, I feel like intuition drives me more than, than anything else. And it's, it's usually only afterward that I listen to something I worked on and I'm like, oh, this is, here are the mechanical aspects of what I did and here's what I, you know, navigated through. But I don't ever feel like I'm consciously going, well, I'm going to use this chord modulation and I'm going to go here with this. And it, it, it never really feels right to do it that way. Sure. It feels less expressive. You feel a little bit more like, um, I guess like a mechanic in a sort of way. Yeah. Well, and, you're, you're thinking about the, this tool rather than the feeling, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a true, when you're truly in the, in the, in the flux of creativity, you're not thinking about any of that thing or any of those things, really. You're just simply there existing within that. And you're at that like pinnacle. And that's really where every artist really wants to be. I would think, you know? Yeah, I, I think so. And it's, for me, it's usually the emotional sort of expression is usually the first, that's like the the place you start. And then if you're lucky by the end of the, you know, the piece that you're working on, it'll be somewhere in the ballpark of what you were originally aiming for. But sometimes it just becomes something else and you just have to let that happen and not try and, you know, force whatever your goal is on it and just do what it wants. Yes, because it's actually showing you that you're evolving and that your work is evolving and great work actually evolves in a really weird way too. It's like it, it's exactly that. My friend, my friend, Simon was, he made a a statement on his, I forget where he's, I was following him on something. He was saying that he was learning a lesson about directing and he was saying, it's not so much about controlling where the ship goes, but like helping steer it, I guess. And it was Mm. very true because it's like, the the art form itself is going to go wherever it's going to go, no matter how hard you control it and the way, the way you experience it. Um, I've had this happen because I feel like I've experienced a lot of different phases of creativity. One of them is trying to control every aspect of it, which is certain ways. Sometimes it's kind of like you want to, right? Like when you mix something, you want to make sure that you're controlling that feeling when you mix something. But there's when you're when you're creating the work, you kind of want to let the work itself kind of take a, on a life of its own because that's when the evolution happens. So it's a matter of knowing when to turn these things on and off, which I think a really high level creative understands when to turn those triggers on and off and how to evolve them and mm-hmm. how to really play within those kind of realms. And 
And when you experience that, like from a creative, um, or like within music or visuals or games or whatever, as a user, you experience it and you don't really realize, in my opinion, you don't realize it until you've gone through it yourself, you know, like where you go like, wow, that's really brilliant. You know, like, I think we were just talking about journey and we really connect with it, you know, because I think we can see, wow, they really made a lot of really smart choices here yeah, um, to get us to this experience, you know? Yeah. There, there was another game I was playing a while ago that sort of gave me this similar, similar vibe. It was, it was called inside. Oh yes. I was like, just going to say that. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. I, Cause those are the two first games that I've played yet on my PlayStation. And I was like, uh, well, these are brilliant and masterful works. Like this is insane. <laughs> Cause I, my, before all this, I was thinking like games were just like, you know, shoot them and like kill them, get the points, you know, all this stuff. And I, I hadn't experienced a game like those two games before. So I, I got slammed by like the, the best things like in, in back to back. I was just like, okay, well I need to make games now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, those are hard, high, high bars that they set too, which is, yes. I mean, I, I saw a couple of developers and a few of the programmers at the, I think it was the unity awards a couple of years ago. Yeah. GDC. Yeah. And they, they gave this amazing, it was super technical talk on just sort of, you know, the, the the engine that they built like they used unity to make it but they did some custom stuff to it and it was just sort of and it was all in service of the experience and not like just because they wanted to do some new cool thing it was like it was making the game better yes and you can really tell uh with the finished the finished result it's just so it's it's just like it has that same thing journey does where it's just such a great experience it's yeah i mean it's like on the opposite side of that spectrum whereas like journey is this has moments of, um, cause I mean, they're, the, they're all about this, the hero's journey, literally in the game mm-hmm. journey with, with inside it's so ambiguous and so obscure and so many questions are being asked and my, it makes, it makes my brain kind of freak out. Cause I'm like, well, what's that? What about this? And then it's, mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's brilliant because that's really what great art does is it, it opens the, it gives it to the consumer myself. And then it says, well, here's a world. And then I go like, well, what is this? And then for most people, they're like, oh, I'm over. This is boring. But for the for the people that are willing to go through that journey, they're like, okay, well, what is this? And answering the questions. And there's this synergy that happens because the less you show, the, the perfect amount of, of less you show, the better the experience is for the user because mm-hmm. the user can finish and fill in the gaps, you know, and close it and, and connect with it. And then, that, in fact, what's happening is that they're creating the art with them. And that's the brilliance of Inside, I think, is so much of that game, especially like the ending and just the, how it works, the game mechanics, the puzzles and all that stuff. It's really, it's really brilliant. It was funny. People were like, I can't believe it took six years. I'm like, yeah, but like, can you imagine you like, the thing is that you, if you, if you say that, then you have no comprehension of how to make great work. <laughs> I was yeah. like, that's an insult to say that, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's who like cares if it took six years? It's like, it's worth it. You know? Yeah. It's like this expectation that it's only supposed to take six months or a year or something. And it's like, no, n- no. like it's, <laughs> no, it's- <laughs> no. And I really love that there's people out there like that. It's so cool that you bring that up. Cause I was literally just watching that GDC talk that they were talking about the, they were talking about the, um, the, the blob. I don't want to ruin it for people. So, but they were talking about a, a certain character within the game and the, the mechanics behind it. And I just thought it was so, so brilliant and stuff. Cause I remember when I was playing and I got to that point, I was like, what, what is this? You know, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. I also really well, admired then- how short of a game it was too. Like how it was, 
it was like maybe a three hour experience or something like that, which, which is nice. It wasn't like this, like I have to invest my life and sit and play with this thing to actually feel like I've overcome or like achieved something, you know? Yeah. And there's all the sort of underlying puzzles that you can do that are, they're not required to, you know, to beat the game, but you can, you can invest quite a bit of time in that if you actually, if you really want to. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much but to it. Yeah. What, one of the things you were saying earlier that I thought was really cool, um, sort of leaving room for the audience to put, you know, to, to contribute their part to whatever they're experiencing. Yeah. Um, I was, my wife and I were just watching the Christopher Nolan, uh, Batman trilogy recently. Mm. And I think it was the second movie. I don't know if this is how they did it, but I, this is what I think they did. Like, uh, I'm going to ruin it for people. I'm hopefully they've seen is it. Spoiler but, uh, alert. Okay. Yeah, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched the Superman or the that sorry, sorry Superman, the Batman uh, franchise where Chris Nolan just yeah maybe stop this, watch it, and then come back to the episode. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure everybody's seen it though. Yeah, it came out a while ago. Yeah. But so there's this there's a shot where the building blows up and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal dies, and rather than like show the her explode or anything, they just all you see is like lights turn on and like wind blowing, and that's it, and that's like. Smart. And you're left with like whatever happened. And you're, I think that is so much more powerful than like showing someone explode into CGI, you know, whatever. The less and, you show, man. The less you yeah. Show. And it's just so, and I was like, God, that's so brilliant. And it, it's made me think a lot about how I need to sort of leave room for people to inject themselves into whatever I'm working on. That's good, man. It's so important to be introspective and like think about that and perceive the art like that. And it's so cool that. Because Nolan does that a lot with his work, which I really appreciate. He's one of those huge, massive directors, one of the biggest still to this day that has the ability to push these massive budgets to get out the, these films out to reach so many people. Um, mm. And he's able, like, I, I think one of my favorite films of him is his last film, Dunkirk. And I think the thing I love about it most is there's very little dialogue in it, which I think is so important. I think what really yeah. kills me with his films when I rewatch them is just how much dialogue is there just to kind of spoon feed people that aren't able to follow along with it. Yeah, um, I felt like that with Interstellar for sure. Yeah, Interstellar drives me crazy because I loved the film visually and I felt that there were some incredible things happening in there. But there was mm-hmm. so much, um, I always forget the name of this. There's there's a word for it where it's uh, the, basically the, the the text that feeds the, the story along. I forget this. Oh, yeah. Content. yeah it's it's like uh when they're just saying the plot out loud kind of thing that's pretty much it and it drives me nuts because i'm like oh man like why don't you just let me kind of fill in the blanks here but i get why they do it it's it's more or less a production risk and they want to make sure that everybody in the theater is following along with it which is For fine sure. it's and yeah it, because his art is mass consumption consumption in an artistic way so yeah. Uh, and, and to credit the movie too i mean i was so surprised by how good the science was in interstellar i i I remember just going, being excited to see a Christopher Nolan movie. And then I don't think it's like halfway through or three quarters through. I was like, I can't believe how good the science is in this. Like mm. they actually like there. Yeah, there were the moments where they kind of um, sort of had to, I, I don't know, just have characters say things that I, I thought were obvious to a lot of people. But, um, you know, they like went deep into relativity, which is not something you see in like a major Hollywood movie, which I was really surprised by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had Kip Thorne. I have the book on it right. too. So Kip, yeah. I think Kip was really, um, Chris and Kip were really close in making sure that, cause I remember watching interviews and stuff like that. And Kip was very, um, adamant and very close with making sure that things were scientifically accurate and, 
Um, and then Nolan would say, you know, there's going to be moments where we're going to have to, you know, adjust things so that uh, it, it feeds the story, you know. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's, you know, that's 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 what happens when you're when you're going into those realms. But I I still did really appreciate a lot of it in the film, and there are some incredible moments in that film. The Tesseract was just so brilliant and so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that one's still like, oh man, McConaughey too is. Oh, he's incredible. That was so good. I love it because like Contact's one of my favorite. Zemeckis films too and and Mm -hmm. and I loved Carl Sagan's story as well because I'm such a Sagan fan but I love that you know Matthew is in that film and then he's in Interstellar I just I I just felt that was such a so just it was so fun to see him play those like yeah because he plays like the preacher in the first one in Contact and he's like sort of he's not anti-science but he's definitely like he's the exact opposite of who he is in Interstellar which is it's pretty cool. And and if you think about it, Jodie Foster is then the girl in Interstellar. If you think about it, like if you really go meta with it, it's like, it's kind of like that, you know, like, yeah, I can like, see that. Cause he has a, like, he has a fondness, not a romantic necessarily like this, like, you know, sexual desire towards Jodie, uh, like, you know, primitive, like in, in, in contact, he has mm-hmm. more of like a fatherly love, um, you know, like a messenger of God kind of love to her, you know? So just, kinda yeah, like, yeah. So they're very connected. I, th- I felt like, which I thought I thought was really great too. And um, and I really do lo- appreciate and love that you know newer IPs are existing and they're being made, and especially at that scale too. I'm, I'm excited to see what he makes next. I'm always a, I always almost always go see his movies. I, I kind of don't go to the theater much anymore. I, I can't stand all the people. <laughs> they drive me nuts. They ruin the film for me with their cell phones and stuff. Yeah. But, I was just going to say, it's the phones that always come out that like, yeah. like even if I go see something on IMAX, it's like, I'm, I'm like, why? Like the sound is great, but why am I seeing phones everywhere in front of me? Yeah. It's really a problem. Cause it's just yeah. like, man, and I get like, I'm the guy that says like, turn off your phone. Cause I'm like, dude, you're ruining it for me. Please stop it. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's my wife's like, Oh, come on, calm down. <laughs> like, no, I, turn off your phone, man. <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting yeah. here in a communal place like it's your bright phone is like it's ruining the experience for me i, I, I had it. this idea to like build a theater and put a faraday cage inside of it so no one's phones work and that'd be great Please. that i think that someone probably could start a business with that right now if they wanted to 100 percent, you know or go like i usually end up going to see the film like maybe three or four weeks right before it leaves the theater i end up going to see it and like That's during time. the matinee, yeah. you know, it's a, it's unfortunate cause like, you know, the internet people spoil it and blah, blah, blah. I've just kind of gotten over, like I remove those kind of feeds from my life cause I don't want to have anybody tell me things. I actually don't watch trailers or anything. I don't really, I think that ruins things honestly for me at least. Cause yeah, I feel the same. Cause you like the last film that I watched a trailer to that I saw and never watch a trailer again was this film hereditary. Have you seen that film? Uh, no, I haven't seen it actually. It was like the trailer was one thing and the film was a complete other. And it was like really, it wasn't anybody's fault. I think it was just more or less like, I felt like, like, it's like I'm at the store and I really wanted a banana and it was like, Hey, there's a banana banana. And I go and I buy it and I leave the store and I go and take a bite of it. And it turns out to be an orange or something weird or like a, a, an onion. Yeah. And I'm like, Whoa, what is this? You know, I was expecting a banana. I got an onion and it's the same experience. And I was like really kind of let down and kind of felt cheated in a sense and nothing against them because I think that they were just doing what they felt was in their best intention to make the best thing. The trailer was a brilliant the trailer was brilliant. Like, mm-hmm. and I found the trailer to be way better than the film. It was for me personally. Um, but I know I had a problem with the film, 
but um, people are probably listening like, ah, it's like I think a lot of people really enjoyed it, but whatever. I'm I'm known to be weird with my tastes, so whatever. So yeah, that's we all got our own. You know, it's we're not all the same person, so it's it's totally. I think you should kind of expect that too. And and to your point too with the trailer thing, I, I've I've tried to sort of cut that stuff out as much as I can. Like even even when HBO will have like a trailer for an, an older movie I haven't seen. Sometimes they're hilarious if you put them on and there's like like old voiceover stuff that nobody yeah. does anymore. And it's and it's so not what the movie is at all. Yeah, they're completely wrong. And it's like yeah. it's designed for people just to it's like clickbait or like it's I look at it almost like as like an infomercial or something. It's that bad and it degrades the, the content that far. And I really yeah. don't like it because it's like, ah oh, man, I don't need that. You know, what's best is like when somebody that you really appreciate or is a great curator will say, hey, like, I really appreciate this film. You might like it or you might not, you know, mm-hmm. and and the and, and the great thing about art is that and there's a weird thing that I find that happens a lot more with Internet and the people on the Internet more, which is us and our generation and everybody's generation, basically. But everybody thinks that the, the art and the things that are being made are supposed to be designed, tailor fit for them. And that's just not true. You know, so the fact that I don't like something doesn't mean that it, it's not good. It just means that it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't like superhero movies. I just don't like them. I don't. I don't. They don't do anything for me beyond make me like frustrated. But you know, there's so sure. many people that love them, and it's like there's nothing wrong with that. You know. Yeah, it, that's. I, I, it's. It is kind of strange, especially now if you or if you have any sort of opinionated taste, it, you kind of you're sort of like dancing around landmines during conversations or, you know, like posting anything on Twitter, everyone is going to take it very personally. And yeah, it's just kind of like, I I feel like no one's leaving room for like other people's (laughs) thoughts and emotions. It's just their own that need to be addressed all the time. Yeah. Bill Burr said it perfectly in one of his comedy skits. He calls it like, um, I'm right.com and stuff, you know, it's like (laughs) on the internet and just how you exist within it. Yeah. And Twitter is one of those places. It's like I've, the last time I re- reflected on my own opinion of something on there was was I said I didn't like the new Star Wars and I just got berated. I was like, geez, you know, it's like, yeah, I to have my own opinions. I really did not like that film. And I'm, I'm like, I realized like, oh, I'm using this platform incorrectly. People don't use it like this. They use I was like, oh, Twitter's used for like sharing like, oh, I'm really into this music or like sharing good things or asking about like, you know, what kind of technical things are you using or what mm-hmm. kind of monitor should I buy And that? That's actually brilliant. I've been using it for that exa- example. And there's a great network of people out there that will share information like that, but sharing your opinion on there. No, it's, in whole, it's a bad social experience. And the main thing is because it removes the humanity from a conversation because it's like, you're only allowed to use a certain amount of characters, you know, which, yeah, matter. that's yeah, that's and you know another part of it too is I think a lot of us, especially our generation and younger, have sort of reached a point where everything's so instantaneous that we, like, we expect uh, all of the information and all the facts to be available like immediately. And I don't know some of the some of the problems we have are so long term, like it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of uh, long term strategy that like sort of, I don't think people really want to hear that. And so they just fill it with like whatever's available, which is mostly like misinformation and speculation and stuff like that. And it's, it's kind of frustrating to, if you go too far down that rabbit hole online. No, yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. I have a couple of my friends that go like really far down. I'm like, dude, you have like way too much time invested in this stuff because 
you're literally just filling your life and head with noise, you know, like you're, yeah. it's like you're looking at the ocean and you're trying to figure out like where God lives in the ocean or something. You're like, dude, like just, why don't you just sit there and be calm with it? And then it'll come, you know, like, yeah, just try, listen like, to it. It sounds just, great. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like don't, it's, I always look at the, I always use the ocean as a perfect example is like, you can't stop it. It's just going to go and you can't try to control every wave and how it f- moves and forms and how it touches the sand. It's like, that'd be a waste. You know, what you should do is just literally experience. It. And if you don't want to experience it, then don't go to the ocean. <laughs> you know, like so much yeah. of it is self-propelled. And I always find it funny when people are like, oh, I'm like victimize themselves on it. I'm like, no, 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 you can, you, you are the one that's putting yourself here. You literally can remove these apps from your life and be happier. I have, it's been kind of an interesting and a constant thing I've been bringing up on the show. And it's something I've been talking a lot about with um, our guests and friends and stuff. And I just finished working on a film that's kind of around this stuff too, is social media and is it healthy and all these kind of things too. And mm-hmm. I find it fascinating because it's, it's really something that something for us to consider and think about, you know? Yeah. And you know, to your point too, I, I think it, I do sort of, I actually feel really bad for a lot of people in terms of like the victimization stuff. And yet like people's habits are really responsible for sort of these spirals that we all go down. But there's also like a lot of profit to be made on keeping people doing that. And I think there's just so much incentive um, that that's why it keeps happening over and over again. And, you know, it's sort of like, like I've had to work in Las Vegas a bunch the past couple of years and you just see people sit in front of these slot machines like all day and they spend all of their time and money. And it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing with phones now. It's, it, it is nuts. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> but if they're happy and they're they're they, I mean, if they're really legitimately happy and content doing that, then I have no place. But at the same time, when I look at it, I can't help but pass judgment of knowing that they're not, they're not living to a full potential. But who am I to say, you know, but, uh, but I, I get us like, cause I can't stand Las Vegas, but when I go there, it makes me sick. Yeah, <laughs> and, me too. I, I really don't like it at all. It's, it's not designed for, for me. <laughs> no, it's for me and my perspective, it's the worst place ever. <laughs> like my wife has the, the, she always cracks up cause when I've had to go there a couple of times for like weddings or something like that, she's like, Oh God, here, here we go. <laughs> and I'm just like, Oh, yeah. but I mean, it's just me. That's how I work. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I, when I was there recently, cause I go, I'm really into cars and stuff. So I go to this thing called SEMA and I watch all these cars and these builds, but I have to go to Vegas cause that's where it's at. And yeah, like walking through the casinos and all the crazy air and the smoke and then people seeing the machines and I'm, and just being overwhelmed with all that. I was like, this is like the internet. I was telling my friend, I was like, this is literally you're on the internet. There's no filters and you're just going through it and you're getting barraged by shit. Yeah. It's like you have no ad blocker on, you're in the dark web and you're just getting blasted by it, but you're you're not on a computer with like interaction with a mouse keyboard and a monitor. You're literally with your physical body in that place. And it's like, ugh, <laughs> this is gross, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what the internet is. It can be at least there's, it's, it doesn't have to, you could definitely find your own things. But I also remember listening to um, a really poignant conversation that Barack was having with Anthony Bourdain, I think on one of his parts unknown, where he was talking about the dangers of data ecosystems and big data is that, as a user, you basically create your own ecosystem. And the problem within that is you don't have no realm of um, empathy. And that's where we have a lot of divisions that exist because of the internet. Um, because people go to like, I'm right.com, like Bill Burr says, you know, and they feed themselves yeah. all the information that they want to have and hear and not what they should actually be knowing, which is, you know, a lot of fake news and 
all this bullshit yeah. and a lot of people just stirring up information that really isn't right and isn't true. Like the whole flat earth thing and all that stuff. It's like, come on, you guys. It's a proof yeah. that it's like it's spinning out of control, you know? Well, that, yeah. And it's like, I, I don't even, I, there's been a couple people on some, some forums that I interact on that have been talking about flat earth stuff lately. And I'm just like, like if you just took like 10 minutes and like just read and thought about how some of the most brilliant people that have ever existed have like spent their entire lives trying to solve a few of these problems, you realize how, like how absurd some of these premises are, but yeah. it, I don't know, I guess it feels more like a, um, like more like a, an identity that people develop and then like yes. they have to defend the identity and it's not about the ideas anymore. And that's, that's like an impossible battle to, to fight. hundred percent. That's religion, you know, and that's, that's, there's yeah. a, there's a lot of things. And, and at the same point, like who are we to even judge and let them. And that's one thing I really do appreciate about the flat earth guys and people like, it's like, Oh, you're, you're really questioning things, which I think is brilliant. You know, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. I just, I just like, we'll question them, but don't just be lazy about it. Like question it, like you said, finish it with like studying and, and you're basically disrespecting like people that are way more brilliant than you that are mm. before you have, have put in all the work so that you wouldn't have to ask these questions, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's like a miracle to me that we even know, like the fact that like we put someone on the moon is just like every time I, I think about that, it is like the most sobering thing ever. It is so yeah. remarkable that human beings have figured out how to do that. Yeah, because it's a brilliant achievement, and for people that were like, it's fake and stuff, and like, guys, it is not, man. It is, <laughs> it is not. It simply is not. And and the reason why, like, the reason why I know it's not is because I've looked deeply into the photographs and all that stuff from the trips and all that stuff. And it's like being uh, a person that understands CGI and all that stuff. It's just mm -hmm. this is not possible. Like it literally yeah. happened, people. Like, please stop like making this. Like, oh, Stanley Kubrick, this and that. And no it's not possible. And another thing is that humans are not good at keeping secrets. We're just not. It's like, yeah, we can't that stuff get out. We, we would have known about that like a week after. Oh, dude, a hundred percent. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of slip through the cracks of time, you know, like maybe the JFK thing and all that stuff. Like, is that a conspiracy and all those kind of things? I think mm -hmm. those are a little bit more perceivable because they're, they're a smaller group of people that are attached to that. But mm -hmm. you're talking about like, massive massive amounts of people and resources and efforts to go into these things and you know it it always comes out man it always does the truth finds its way eventually and something that has been going on for such a long time eventually something would come out about it um but yeah i mean the thing is i think reality is people want to romanticize it because i think it's what tv and music and, and all these things have done to us condition us to think of these things as even being this romantic kind of like star wars kind of things but you said it in the beginning of our conversation is like when you started studying um astrophysics and astronomy you realize how dry it actually is it's not romantic you know it's yeah there's a lot of dry time to either. it yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's all true. And, and, and also just, you know, sort of the time I spent being around people there, especially my professors, like they are, the people that do that for a living are so unbelievably intelligent that it sort of freaked me out some days. Like I'd, I would realize I'd be sitting next to these people and I was just like, I cannot believe that I'm, I'm allowed to sit next to you right now <laughs> because of how I can feel your brain. And, <laughs> and, and those are the people that, you know, built the rockets that sent Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and company to the moon. And yeah. it's just, I don't know what, I, I just wish people could kind of experience stuff like that more. And I think they'd be more reticent to just sort of say whatever their, their, 
however they feel that day and then accept that as the truth. And it's kind of like, uh, I've heard people call them hypothetheories. It's, it's kind of like that. They're like, have the hypothesis where they're like, I think this happened. And then they just accept it and move on and they don't ever challenge that. Please don't do that. People, please don't. We, we, we need to evolve beyond that, you know, like look at it further. Yeah. And if you're going to have a vocal, like, like, yeah, it's like, that's so unhealthy and to spread that, like, when people are spreading fake news and stuff like you're, 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 you're criminal, man. Like stop that. Like you're yeah. spreading stupidity and like, it's very harmful. You need to stop it because you're impressioning people and it's an, it's very unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. The, and you condition them to like expect that now. And now like, this is part of the reason bullshit. that journalism has such a hard time. Like good journalism has a hard time competing is because we've all been conditioned to like be blindsided by all of the headlines. And so well, it's true, you know, nuance, it never, it doesn't hit hard enough and so no one reads it yeah and it's like what yeah what is true and and how to discover that i stopped watching and listening to the news years ago mm-hmm. maybe maybe a decade ago or something i just i was like it's just it's it's a telephone effect noise machine it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter to me and does i can't do anything about it i have some close family members that are like they're, they're the first thing they do in the morning is they watch the news and all that stuff and then when i hang out with them talk to them they they're all like bound up and i'm like what's wrong with you? And they're like, Oh, I watched this thing. I'm like, man, like, why would you, who cares? What are you going to do? Are you going to go to Syria and help it? No. I'm like, well then what do you care? Like, well, it's news. I'm like, okay, well that's fine. But it's like, you got to be able to process this because if you don't, you're going to get like a tumor, you know, like it's like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's travesties that have been happening since the beginning of mankind. And the fact that you cannot control them in the future, in the past, it's like, you have to be aware that you're just a citizen. You're just a, you're along for the ride and it's, that's it. You know, you know, there's a great, I, I'm pretty sure it was Denzel Washington. It was an interview I was reading. I don't, I don't know why I remember He's pretty this. brilliant, huh? With his interviews. He's damn poignant with his words, yeah, man. Yeah, he, he really is. But I, I remember, I, I think they were talking about the news and he said, he said, if you read the news, he said, if you don't read the news, you're uninformed. If you read the news, you're misinformed. Yeah. And that's kind of what it what it's felt like the last couple of years for sure. Like there's there's certain journalists out there that I'll still I'll I'll, I'll read it if they wrote it, but um, for the most part, I've sort of checked out of that stuff too. And this is a noise machine, man. It's like night. Yeah. And if you're gonna spend your time, it's like there's such a finite amount of time that we actually have, and time crime is what I call it. You know, it's like when you're not when you're not putting the time, especially somebody that has a gift like yourself. If you're not putting your everything into the time that you have within your your craft and, and really focusing on it and building it out. It's like you'd probably, if you were to look at your life as a graph, you know, like I did this one thing where I did a social experiment, experiment, a friend of mine, he was doing this thing where he would check off every week of his life. He would do an, an estimation of how much time he had. And he had a chart basically. And he would look at it and every week that he, he'd finished, boom, you check it off, you know, <laughs> and you would see, and it's, it's really, it's, 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 I found that people were really uncomfortable with it. And I, and I never realized it. I was like, well, that's it. Cause we're, you know, we're lucky to have the time that we have and that's it. And people like when they saw, they're like, Oh, I don't know. And it's like, well, if you're afraid of it, that means that you're wasting your time. If, yeah, if you're not, that means that you're living your p- maximum potential. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember there's a, a blog that I, I really like a lot called wait, but why? Hmm. And I think he, he designed a, some sort of like, I think it was a weekly, um, square chart system thing where it's kind of the same thing. And yeah. once you see it all mapped out, it is, it's kind of terrifying. But yep. like you said, if, uh, you know, if you're not, if that scares you, then it means you're probably, uh, not addressing something that you should address and, and, and move on and, and work with it. 
Yeah, come to terms with it and realize that we're we're all sharing the same currency here. And if you're going to waste your time, you know, on Instagram surfing around or just like obsessing about other people or whatever, um, basically wasting your life, then it's like, you know, that's a crime, not against anybody but yourself. And that's a crime against everybody, you know, in my yeah. opinion. So, but I think that's just like, it's something that I've been becoming more aware of, you know, I'm 35 now. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot more for the past five years. And I'm sure it's going to compound as I try to develop and, and, and adjust to these things. But it's also something I feel is really important to talk about on these kind of platforms. I think podcasts are brilliant stages to talk about very complex things like this um, because mm -hmm. it allows it to do it. A la, you can't do this on Twitter, you know, <laughs> like this would just yeah. not come across. It just wouldn't work. I, you know, the funny thing is in my head, when I read comments on Twitter, no matter what it is, I read it as like an asshole, like an asshole yelling at me. <laughs> it's like the voice yeah. I give these things I'm like, Oh, like, and it's, it's, it's actually unhealthy, but I, I always add it like in my opinion, after every sentence that Smart. I read on Twitter, it's the, yeah, it's, that closes that out and you're like, Oh, the person that reads it, if they don't, you can instantly tell like, Oh, I'm going to have to block you or remove you from this because it's you're You didn't read, you know, you didn't yeah. missing the point here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a weird and thing. I, and like, just to bring it back to music too, I think that's one of the nice things is I, I sort of have the luxury of, I don't have to hear people's comments about it unless I yes. like go out of my way to find it. Um, and Do I, you I'm read comments and stuff. Cause I know that you're on Bandcamp and stuff like that. And I think, do they have, are you on like a like SoundCloud or anything like that where they, people are able to leave comments and stuff on your work? I'm not on SoundCloud. I think I've uploaded stuff for like music licensing for SoundCloud, but I really don't like SoundCloud and I've just, I've kind of never understood why it needed to exist. Yeah. And the whole comment thing as it pops up as you're listening to something is just so, it's just like, why would you want anyone to, I just, I don't know. I don't get it. Wild, huh? And you know, maybe if I was like a hip hop artist, I could see the appeal of it. Cause that's, that's kind of what does really well on that platform. Yes. But I could see that. A, as a classical composer, I just, I'm just, I have no idea why you'd want to. <laughs> oh, here comes that. the beat. Here comes the drop. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, I've done, yeah. I remember it's funny you say that there's a, I think I remember the the comment that I read that made me realize that like SoundCloud was, was not where I wanted to spend time. Hmm. There's a, a, a composer named uh, Neil Fromm or Niels Fromm. Yes. I love I his work. His yeah. He's done some great stuff and Incredible. It was his piano pieces, I think were there was a comment that popped up in the first chorus that was like, this does not hit hard enough. And I was oh, just like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And how dare you even say that? <laughs> yeah. And it, and it just cheapens like the song. And now like, I still remember it now. And uh, it's a isn't that song. the worst? Yeah. It's when terrible. it comes up, you're thinking about that asshole that put that there. And you're like, thanks a lot. You fucking dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. They've already won kind of thing. And yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> And it's, I hate that about me too, because when I, I'm just thinking about that, I can't remember the exact experience, but it, I was just thinking like how sad it is that negative comments last way longer, you know, and how yeah. they, they ruin things. They really do. And I, I think that's, man, it's great that you brought that up because I was literally just thinking about this last night and I, there's a podcast that I listened to, um, from Seth Godin called Akimbo. And he, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if he has ever addressed this because he's quite brilliant about addressing these very complex things, but yeah, that's man, that's such a bummer. It didn't hit hard enough. Like, get out of here, dude. Get yeah, out of you know, here. It's like, and it kind of exploits this like thing in our brains where we just, most of us tend to remember the, the bad thing more than the good thing because it helps yeah. us. It's like helped us survive. In yes. The past. It's a survival mechanism. 
Yeah. yeah. And so it just, we just keep getting that reinforced over and over again when like that worked like, you know, 2000, 3000 years ago, it doesn't work very well now. No, it's actually very counterintuitive. And I think like you're, you said it perfectly. And I think it actually SoundCloud, I can see working really well with like very lyrical based things or hip hop stuff like that. I can see that making sense. Um, it works pretty interesting with podcasts too. Like we, we have it, we use um, SoundCloud to put the podcasts on and it's Mm-hmm. kind of interesting, you know, like I don't, I've basically removed myself from reading any comments. I'm sorry, people, if like, a, like if you put a comment on the, um, the podcast saying, I'll probably never read it. Um, just because you probably, maybe that's because I'm insecure. Maybe it's because I don't want to hear it. Maybe it's because I just don't want that in my life. <laughs> and, um, I feel like, I feel like it creates a lot of anxiety within myself and and then I'm not being true when I'm doing this thing. And I feel that that's an off offense against myself and then the listeners in general, you know? So, um, but I find that SoundCloud actually does work somewhat well for podcasts is, um, the times that I would read the comments is like, Oh, that's a poignant point or that's interesting. Or there's, there's contributions to the conversation that happen and evolve beyond it, which I think is really cool too. Um, mm-hmm. but it instantly becomes this like weird spiral that kind of unfolds too. So, um, but I think it's the nature of things and I think it's really key for us to be aware of like what works when, why it works and how to like use it in a way because we're so new to this thing, the internet, you know, and how we use it. So, and that's really cool that you don't, um, put your stuff on there because it's not what you want to align yourself with too. So yeah, you know, trying to cultivate something that people want to to do. Um, like, I mean, Bandcamp is really great. I, I wish it was bigger. Like, I, I wish that it uh, was as big as iTunes or Spotify. But, um, you know, it, I do. It sort of goes against this weird thing, though. I, I definitely have this belief of just trying to be available as possible and be wherever people can find you. Yeah. Um, and that's part of that comes from, I think it was like two or three years ago when I when I just finished working on prune and I was putting out the soundtrack, I, I remember sort of drawing a line in the sand and I was like, I'm only putting this on Bandcamp. I'm not doing it on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else because that's just not the, that's not where I wanted the audience to be. And I think I was really naive because I thought what people would do is they would go and look on whatever um, music platform they use and they would look for that soundtrack and and if they couldn't find it on there, they would just go find it on Bandcamp. And that's actually like not what happens at all. Most people, if they don't find it on the thing they use, they just, that's it. Like that's the end of the transaction. Yeah, that's the ecosystem. I, I was like that very much so. I'm, but I do know that because I don't have Spotify. I just have iTunes and then I use Bandcamp as well. I, a lot of my friends and the music that I listen to is on Bandcamp as well. But I try to, it's, it's just ecosystems, right? It's where people are consuming things. And I wouldn't consider myself a music connoisseur. I do love music. Um, mm-hmm. and I spend a lot of time listening to music and finding music and sharing music and, and hunting it down. Um, but I, it's odd that I don't have a Spotify account. My friends use them and they send me links. I'm like, Oh, okay. I got to find where this track is on iTunes, I guess, you know? So, um, it's, it's the same conundrum I have with like Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, um, all these different, basically they're, they're the new media, um, features yeah. basically. And it's like, you got to have like 20 accounts and it's, it's frustrating for me as a user because then I'll, I'll have an account on my phone and then like HBO log out on my iPad and I'm trying to watch something there and I have to like, remember the password to get into that. And I'm like, man, like it's just very frustrating, you know, yeah. the end user. It's, 
I feel like it's it's definitely different for video too. Like there's this really strange thing where people are okay with like HBO having their own exclusive content and Netflix having their own exclusive content. But like every music platform has to have every piece of music in existence or else people won't subscribe to it. And yeah. I, I don't I guess I don't understand that, but it's just kind of the way that it is and music so was the like, first one to get the big bitch slap, you know. Totally. And, yeah. and, you know, the music industry did what it always does, which is it, it fucked itself in its own face. Yes. And it, that, yeah. So that's, we're all dealing with the aftermath of that. <laughs> yeah. It's an unfortunate thing. It's something I definitely want to talk with you about too, because of what music is and making a living, making music has got to be incredibly challenging. Um, Cause I know following my passions and making a living is, is, is equally difficult. I can imagine but I to, to our to our point about talking about platforms and stuff because that was something I wanted to talk about as well as in my opinion I don't know it would be for me if I were to like make something I would if, and in regards to music I would imagine that it would be be best in my best interest to just get it out everywhere as much as I could as long as it felt within my range of healthy like you know mm-hmm. not SoundCloud necessarily because of the comment thing but just getting it out beyond um, just one place because it maybe it will spread faster or like more people listen to it or whatever. But I guess it comes down to your intentions, right? Like if you're, if your intention is to have more people listen to your music, then I would say it makes complete sense to just publish it everywhere. If your other exam, if you're with, but if your muse is like, this is my hobby and it's something I do just because I enjoy it. Like I had, um, there's a musician that I had on, he goes by the name cloud kicker. He's brilliant. He makes all the music himself and he does like really gnarly kind of, it's like, I guess it sounds more like tortoise and then, but he does a lot of super okay. crazy metal and stuff too. And it's like really awesome, but he's a one man band. And he, I asked him when he was on the podcast, cause he, he does music as a hobby. I thought he was doing it like more of a profession cause he's so good at it. But he was like, no, I, I don't want to do music for, for profession cause it would ruin it for me, but I just do it because I love it. And it's like a, in a release for me. And he was saying that I just felt like there was a freedom that he had when I listened to him talk about it. Cause he was like, I just do it because I love it and it's not about me within a secret agenda to work with a certain person or anything like that. I just want to make the music. Yeah. And there's a purity to that. You know, when you mm-hmm. listen to it, you could tell that it's just a person making it and they're enjoying the process of making that. You know? Yeah, that's I mean, I, I that's definitely something I sort of miss. I, I do remember when it felt more like a hobby and it felt more like, um, you know, I'm going to take as much time as I want to explore this idea or whatever. And now it definitely feels a lot more like um, you know, I have to find a way to monetize stuff, um, which I never wanted to be in that position, but sure. it's sort of, it's the way things are now. And, and, you know, Spotify and Bandcamp and, and all the music platforms, it's really, unless you're like in the top one or 2% of, of artists, you're not going to make a living off of money on there, at least not right now. No. Yeah. It's and, like the YouTube people. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, they probably get it worse. I think YouTube's payout is like, is the worst in the industry. Yeah. But, um, so uh, yeah, you, you have to find, if you want to make a living with it, you do have to find other avenues. And and that was definitely a big struggle for me. Like I, I really didn't want to do uh, music licensing for the longest time. Cause I just wasn't interested in writing, you know, commercial music. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up sort of, you know, sort of finding a happy medium where I would write the kind of albums that I would write anyway. And then I would go out and try and find people who are willing to sell it, um, to that, to that audience. That's a smart and, way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's more creatively fulfilling and it's, I've, I've been very lucky the last couple of years. It's, it's worked out pretty well. Um, you know, it's, it's not like, I, I think I could safely say that I do have a career now. 
I always worry that, you know, someone's going to pull out the rug and I'm going to have to, to change strategies immediately. Such but a common problem with us, isn't it? Totally. I yeah. hate that. Don't you hate that? I hate it. Yeah. But it's actually it, what's, it's actually what makes you good though. Makes you sharp, keeps you sharp, keeps you hungry. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny too, cause it's, it turns into this thing where, and I'm sure this happens to you where someone will discover your work and to them, it just sort of feels like it just magically happened. And you're like, <laughs> no, like I had to email like, 40 people and like kick doors down and like just convince people that didn't care to do this one thing. And then that's how you found out about it. And can you imagine the pressures that a person like Max Richter must feel, you know? Oh my God. No. You know? And he's or like Thomas Newman. So you know? Yeah. Thomas Newman is <laughs> Brilliant. another one. Just Brilliant like, people. Alexander Desplat is another one where yes. he just constantly putting out amazing work and he works so much and, and does most of it by himself. Yeah. There's a lot of brilliant people and I imagine they all feel the same way, you know, which is like, you know, Mm -hmm. Oh, is this going to end? And can you imagine at that level of ending or crashing? It's like, wow, how like tragic that must feel. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem, but I think it's also really important. And I think the moment that you become complacent and think that it's just like, Oh, it's, it'll always be there and blah, blah, blah. That's the, when you know you're really hitting a problem, you know, like where you're, you're not being true to what it is, but that's a cool formula. I was going to ask you about that. Cause I was curious about, you know, you, you're able, your ability to follow your passion and be a musician in this time. Um, I feel like it's, there's a, it's a, there's the internet is a brilliant platform for us to be ourselves and to expose ourselves and to share ourselves that, the problem with it is that everybody's doing it at the same time, which is fine, but there's getting it to getting great work to, cause like your, your work is so aligned with the music that I love to listen to when I, when I work or the music that I put to my films and the things that I enjoy. And mm-hmm. I was like, how is it that I haven't heard his work before? That's crazy. You know, like I felt like I was somewhat up to date with like, you know, what's out there, but it just showed me like, there's so much out there. There's so many be- beautiful musicians and amazing great work being created. Yeah. Um, and it was like, wow, again, here we go. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's great that, the, that you used it uh, while you work too. I, I yeah. actually, I, I didn't, I don't think I've even realized until now the way that I discovered Max Richter's music was I was looking for, you know, really good instrumental music to listen to while I studied in school. Mm. And his music just was, I, it was just something I always kept coming back to over and over and over again. It was just so beautiful and, and evocative and, yeah, I, I I have like no qualms about writing music that people like just listen to while they work. If that's the only thing they do with it, I, I it's you know I, it's I think it's okay for music to be kind of utilitarian um, at times. Yeah, I would say, yeah. I mean, from my perspective, that's one of the highest honors I can give to a musician is I like I literally make my life's work while I'm listening to yours. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it's like this continued kind of. Pat, pattern and thing i listened to beyond the rainbow on repeat for hours so i was like wow it was so cool and i <laughs> sent it to so many of my friends I was like this is so great like check this out it was yeah and it really kind of um yeah it was really i really enjoyed it and i think that there's Thanks, man. there's a brilliance to it and i think that from my perspective that's how i consume a lot of the music that i listen to i don't I don't listen to, well, I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff as well. Um, but it depends on what I, I'm doing. If I'm like in a very serious state of creativity or I'm like in the sketching phase of things, um, I'll put on a certain type of music to kind of get me in that headspace. But and yeah. sometimes I'll just listen to nothing and I'll just kind of listen to myself breathe and, and listen to the room and the ambience of the room. And 
Yeah, well, that's the, that's the importance, though, is that you're listening, um, that you're just listening, period. Yes. Which is definitely a valuable skill. And I, and I should I should give uh, the director of that short film, uh, Beyond the Rainbow, Jazil Gale, he sort of was really, he heard something in me that I, I don't think I quite knew was there. Hmm. And he was definitely persuasive in getting me to um, just, you know, write bigger music, essentially. And I, I was really adamant, adamant about keeping it elegant and interesting. But, you know, all the, the feedback I would get a lot was just make it bigger, like make it bigger, make it bigger. And I, I he, it was cool. He pushed me to a place that I didn't know I could go to. And now I know that. And that's very empowering for the future, for sure. Good for you for taking that journey, too. And that's really when great co- collaborative work happens is like, you know, you both put each other in in a little stranger te- te- territories and then you kind of build from there and it evolves basically and that evolution then turns into a new art form and it kind of exposes you to something new um within yourself which is great too and it's like the evolution which i find great you mentioned earlier in our in our in our um conversation about being in bands in high school and stuff i was in the same thing and you sound like you had like you wanted to kind of pursue that but it was unrealistic what kind of music was it that you were making oh it was all all kinds like i remember the first first sort of like real professional band I was in, we were sort of like a, a, an alternative rock band. Like, like we kind of sounded like Our Lady Peace a little bit, if you okay. remember them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we did some touring for a while and played for a couple years. And then eventually that project fizzled out. And I started a new band after that that was, um, it was sort of like a Radiohead meets Nine Inch Nails sort of thing. Ooh, that sounds cool. Which, yeah. I mean, we were all really proud of the music that we, that we cranked out for that band. And same kind of thing, played a bunch of shows. And then that was around the time that I started seriously thinking about going back to school. And um, it was really hard to like manage a band and write all of the music and like be a full-time physics student. So <laughs> it just everything just kind of fizzled out and, and school became more important. Pretty heartbreaking, huh? A little bit, yeah. And I, I think honestly too, part of the reason I, I came back to music after school was just because um, every single time that music hasn't been around or like available for me as an, ex- you know, as an expression, uh, I just, I don't like myself and people around me don't like me very much. And so I, I've, I realized that this is like, I need to value this activity, like period, regardless of whatever I do in the future. And Smart. yeah. And it's, I, I love the way that you framed it earlier too, when you said that you're basically cheating other people out of the experience when you're not, um, when you don't do the work and when you're not honest with yourself about, you know, your skills or your abilities. Yeah, man, it's totally true. And to, 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 to cater to, or to, to, to add to what you just said is that like, literally I heard verbatim from James Hetfield saying that exact same thing, the leader and creator of Metallica, you know, like he said that if he's not making music, if he's not doing that, like everybody around him suffers and he suffers as well. And it's just like, it's, he's in a sense, we're addicted, we're addicts to the thing that we create, you know, we're literally addicted to it. Um, it gives us a certain dopamine drop and it gives us an existence and a feeling and a purpose, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And why not be honest with yourself? I think that's kind of going back to, you know, I think why a lot of people I think are afraid to be themselves a hundred percent and they have been for their lives is because they're worried about the scrutiny of, of other people. And, and trust me, everybody is under that. The thing mm-hmm. is, who cares? You know, really, who yeah. cares? You're yeah, going to find your tribe. Yeah. There's going to be a people that are going to love who you are no matter what. 
It's just the fact of it. It's just literally, there's the most despicable people in the world. Let's say like, I'm going to go to full spectrum. Let's go to Hitler. For example, there's people that adore Hitler. This is, this is what happens. There's, yeah. there's way more people that I hope that despise the person that who he was, but that's a really extreme case. But for you as a normal person, it's like, what's the worst you're going to lose? You're going to lose. People are going to be like, oh, I don't like it. It's like, well, okay, whatever. It's not for you. You know, yeah. shun them, shun the non-believers, keep going, you know, create the work and, you have. And plus, if you frame it kind of the, what we were talking about earlier in terms of like, you know, how many weeks you have left and you can actually visualize and see that it becomes very easy to go, oh, well, I can do something ridiculous and I'm not risking very much because it doesn't matter because there's not many boxes left anyway. So <laughs> exactly. So like, it's yes. kind of morbid, but it's a, it's also uh, very empowering to, to realize that. No, totally. And the thing I learned about that case study, cause I don't do it anymore cause I just don't need it. it. It did what it was supposed to. It basically shook me up and said, Hey, and I was already living at what I felt was my maximum potential. And I was very honest with myself that I was living, like I call it pure potential. Like mm-hmm. I was basically every day was filled with just complete, you know, obsession and like a complete um, dedication to what I feel is my purpose here. And that like going through that motion and stuff. When I did that, I was fine. And what I realized through that process was that you can't quantify time into a, in a to a box. You can definitely see what's past because you can look at it, go, okay, that was a week. Sure. Mm-hmm. But in a one week you can have a kid, you can have uh, fall in love. You can, you can, you could uh, lose somebody that you love. Like big, important, huge life changing things that feel like time doesn't exist. You know, like when you're making love it like time, you're not thinking like, Oh, how long are you looking at your watch? It doesn't matter. Time <laughs> when really, when you're in essence, when you're in essence, when you're living in a really into an experience of life, time itself, it just becomes an abstraction, you know? And that's, I mean, I'm, I can imagine for somebody that like yourself who studied this, like astrophysics and stuff, so much of about that is time understanding what time is and what it means to us Mm -hmm. and isn't that something that probably throws you for a loop because that does exist because our perception of time and reality is so much connected to that you know and how abstract it is and how that the fact that like it doesn't matter in a sense you know like unless you're trying to find a formula of course i'm sure it does but so much of it is theory you know and and it's like you could take a theory or a formula and you can go, well, this is how this works and blah, blah, blah. And then one person can go, well, well, it doesn't work for me like that. And then that's like, well, I guess it doesn't for you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's like one of the, the really cool things too. Like Einstein really kind of freaks me out by how, just how connected to everything he really was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the concept of relativity, that's, I find that that's like one of the most counterintuitive things for most people is to recognize that time is a relative thing and we don't all experience it the same way. Yeah. And it's not just that, like, it's our own subjective understanding of time. It's that time literally is measurably different for each and every one of us based on our experiences and so um, based on how, yeah, it's so like you have, you have Ash time, I have Kyle time and it's, you know, the fractions of, of variables different unless you've been up to space. But it's it's so it's so crazy to me that that's even a measurable phenomenon. It's so cool. I love the there's another theory that I really love about. I forget what it's called, but it's like when you observe something, it changes its molecular form, you know? Oh, yeah. Like the uh, quantum physics. Um, uh, I forget. I can't remember what it's called right now, actually. My professors are going to be really upset with me. <laughs> it's a legitimately, it's a legitimate thing. Look it up. If you've never heard of it, oh, it's incredible. Is it the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I think that's what it is. Yeah, the Heisenberg one. Yeah. And yeah. I love that because it's like, it just goes to show you that 
everything around you within your time to, to, to go back to what you're saying is that your own timeline is so um, uniquely your own. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same thing with like the universe around you molecularly changes based on your perception and re- interaction with it. So mm-hmm. therefore, why wouldn't time do the same thing? You know? Yeah. It's crazy. Totally. Yeah. It's, crazy. it's so, yeah. If you get really far into that rabbit hole, that, that's a fun rabbit hole to go down, but it's, well, it's cause an endless one, just like art is, it's an endless one because there's so many answers that aren't. So if you love puzzles and you love like being frustrated, then that's a perfect one <laughs> yeah, cause it's yeah. and also brilliant. Like, and also like solving things, you know, like being overwhelmed by the life's beauty and, and, trying to really process it. I always think about like uh, Aronofsky's film pie when I think about these kind of oh, things yeah. and how dangerous it is to, to look at, you know, to look at the sun and find God, you know, like all those kind of things, you know, it's like, cause that's really what you're kind of doing. Um, in my opinion, it's like, you're trying to find God or what God is or w- who God is or, or what your God is, or are you God, you know, and all these yeah. things, you know, I, Just, I've been having like similar thoughts lately. I, I'm working on a collection of, uh, like, uh, Lord of the Rings, like medieval kind of ambient classical stuff. Cool. And I've been reading uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces and oh, yeah. watching the Netflix show. And it's so uh, it's so interesting sort of taking that approach of like looking at stories uh, based and rooting it in, in psychology and sort of why we tell these stories over and over again and why it's the same characters that tend to pop up over and over again. And it's, that has been so illuminating, um, looking at, at art that way, I think. Yeah. History repeats itself. Um, if you want to be like, a, Oh, I'm going to predict, you just look back and if you, <laughs> you just look back a couple hundred years and you know, oh, okay, this happened, you know, this is literally happening again right now, you know, like, and you look at it, political systems and everything. It's like history repeats itself so, so often. And we're, we're creatures of habit. And it's almost like, we're in these like pattern loops. We're in these like loop patterns, basically that are happening, feedback loops that are happening. Um, and I think growth happens very slowly in feedback loops. Um, I think growth happens more when people are able to get outside of those loops. And we were talking about the news and all these kind of feedback loops and noise and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what you want in life, obviously, and who am I to judge, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a big, it's a big thing. I need to watch that show. It sounds interesting. And, and Joseph Campbell is always like, he's, he's, he's a person that I really, um, admire, but I'm also very afraid of because I don't like formulating things, you know, like I'm always afraid that like, Oh, you're, you're basically taking these things and turning them into science, you know? Like, Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, I thought about that for a while too. And it's sort of like, it reminds me of like how fashion sort of works, how, mm-hmm like something becomes very fashionable for a while and then it disappears very quickly because it doesn't work and like no one cares about it. Yeah. Like, um, what's a good analogy? Like, uh, like when the laugh track was on like all the TV shows and oh, it worked yeah. for a while and then it like stopped because everyone just hated it so much and it was so stupid. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's a little bit like that where I think if people start doing the same things, then it doesn't work anymore and you have to try new things. Um, but I think there's, I think it's okay to sort of, to, to look at tendencies as long as you don't treat it like, you know, a manual for writing a script or something. I think it's probably, I think you're probably fine. If you, it's actually kind of brilliant in that film. Have you seen Magnolia? Oh, the Paul, Th- yeah, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. The I PTA. love that movie. He's a brilliant man. That guy is, oh, God. have you seen Phantom I, Thread? Yeah, my wife and I just did. Um, well, we saw it in the theaters when it came out and it, it kind of freaked both of us out because, <laughs> 
I'm sure this happened to a lot of couples, but we were like, this was kind of about us. Like yes. we're like almost those characters and it really, really freaked us both out. Yes. I love like when I, Paul was talking about like why he made it and like how he kind of came up with it. He was saying like how the brilliance of being vulnerable in front of his lover and like how like, yeah, it's, it's, um, I didn't end up watching it with my wife. She's not really big into his work. So I ended up, but I ended up watching it with a bunch of my close friends and yeah, I was really, I, I really appreciate almost all his work. Inherent Vice, I just, I couldn't get with that. I didn't understand it. I think it's a film that I'll have to come back to later. It's his weirdest movie, definitely. Yeah, it was, it's, it's almost like I felt like he was getting no feedback from anybody and he was just went off and made something weird. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, like, cool. I could see that. And I was like, okay, well, I, I, you know, the thing is I really appreciate his brilliance. So I was like, maybe I'm missing it here and maybe I'll get to it later on. Um, I'll find, uh, I'll find out what he was trying to tell me or, uh, in, cause movies evolve as you evolve basically. And that's kind of what's brilliant about them. But, yeah. um, but his work is really great. But Magnolia, like it was kind of, if you haven't watched that film, I highly suggest it. It's an amazing movie. Um, but the way he kind of, uh, Nick Cage and his twin brother, which is so brilliant too. But like how they're using the Joseph Campbell kind of thing and, and the guy finds excess in it and like how ironic it is and, and the, the dual line story and all that stuff. It's just really, it's really, um, yeah, yeah. that's one thing I really, it, it, I had, it kind of reconfirmed all my feelings about what it was at the Thomas, uh, or the, um, uh, shoot, I'm drawing the blank now. I'm the looking Joseph at my Camp- Joseph Campbell. Sorry. Yeah. Cause I'm looking yeah. at all my books as I have a couple of his books on my shelf here. Um, and I actually have never read all of them to, through too, which is interesting too. So there's dense. definitely, I mean, this one's dense for sure. Yeah. They're massive, but at the same time, it's like they're massive. But then if you think about it, he's saying the same thing over and over and he's from what I've experienced and the stuff I have experienced from his work, it's like, he's drilling the idea home, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I, I, the thing I do appreciate is like seeing how Joseph's work in, in, encouraged and influenced the creators of journey, for example, and how yeah. they did it in a way that wasn't like with a lot of, you know, uh, dialogue saying like, Oh, we're, you know, like we're at this phase and I'm feeling frustrated and all this. Yeah. That's you know. the, I can't, God, I really hate that in movies. <laughs> oh, it's the so, worst. I literally yeah. stopped watching them. I'm like, oh, okay, well you lost me here. I'm sorry. Like, it's you know, just and, not for and, like, me. and talking about empathy too, like it makes you not empathize with the characters. You're like, if, if you hung around someone all day, who just, they're not being real. They're not being yeah, real. It's not yeah. how people talk. It's not how relationships form. It's not how any of that stuff works. And it's all in the, it's all in the stuff that's not being said. That's when that's like, I bring it up a lot. People probably, like, ah, but a heat heat is one of my favorite films. And it's, Oh my God, me too, man. That's it's, like, it's a brilliant uh, movie. Brilliant movie. I, I just bought it on Blu-ray too. And oh. I never noticed stuff in the background until this past time. And there was this, this scene like blew my mind. It was, it was after like the big famous coffee shop restaurant scene. Oh, so where good. Pacino and, the two yeah. best actors of all time, oh like God, going at so, it. You're like, are you kidding me? There, there's that, there's the line where, uh, I think Pacino says something like, you know, you never wanted a, a normal life. And, mm. and De Niro's like, what, like baseball games and barbecues. And, and then when they actually do like the heist and you see them like shooting at each other downtown, there's like literally barbecues and like wiffle bats and stuff blowing up in the background. And yep. I was like, that is so fucking great. That's great. Oh, I never that's... noticed that. That's great yeah. that you noticed it though too. I mean, again, that's just a testament to the brilliance of that filmmaker. Like, man, mm-hmm. it's so blessed. And even uh, I don't really care for like the new stuff that he makes and nothing against him. It's just, it doesn't do anything for me. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I haven't seen much of his work, honestly. It's Michael Mann, right? Michael Mann, that's correct. Yeah, there, there's. Yeah. I think he did Bad Hat or some Black Hat or something like that, and um, okay. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't watch it. It was like oh, wow. he did that. There was a Russell Crowe movie he did that I really liked. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. Oh, that's really good, dude. And that one's really, yeah. really good. Where he was like an informant. Yeah, I'm gonna uh-huh. look it up right now. So people are there. You're listening to it. See, Michael Mann, IMDb. And this is why IMDb is good. This is the yeah. one thing that I like about IMDb. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> he, it's, um, God, I got to find it. It was, it was really, really good. Or um, Russell Crowe. He's, Michael Mann's done so many films, it's hard to find uh, <laughs> which yeah, one that he, he was. Yeah, he does like a lot of stuff in Hollywood. I, like, I think he does more than just direct, right? Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see. I'm, try, I'm trying to think of the name. Crowe and Michael Mann. Cause that was a really good movie. It was like, he was like this informant kind of guy. Um, but it was really brilliantly done. And because he was kind of like a whistleblower, I think. Right. Yeah. Like the a insider. Cool the that's insider. What yeah. Yes. That's what I just looked yeah. it up too. Yeah. yeah. So good. So good. But for me, heat takes a kick cause it's just like, well, okay. <laughs> the best yeah. movie in this genre is that movie. Like it's so good because it's just all the subtleties and then not the subtleties too. And like um, the obvious stuff and then not the obvious stuff and then the letting things flow and not. And I, I think what really is brilliant about it, and it's something that I, my, my buddy Anthony really brought this to my attention is that with that film, there's a social conundrum that happens that you pick the side, you know, and mm-hmm. nobody's pushing the, they're not as a, as a filmmaker, he's not pushing his agenda on you. He's just saying, you pick, and this is a good. Uh, this is a good example to show you that there's two sides to this. That like good guys and bad guys aren't cut and dry. It's not this thing, you know. It's a dynamic. It's a dynamic thing that happens to this, you know. That, that yeah, life isn't black and white. There's gray in it, and there's the colors flip and switch based on your perception and what you feel, you know. Yeah, and it changes as you get older, and you you know, like you empathize with different characters more. Like this past time I watched it, I was like. I love De Niro. Like I actually kind of empathized with, you know, his choices and stuff, even though, you know, he does like not cool things. It's like, it's not really about that for him. It's, it's about what he wants out of life. And, and sometimes that is something that happens to you. And sometimes it's something that you do, but I, I just love that all of that was in that movie. It's dude, it's packed, man. It's so good. And every time I watch it, I get a little something out of it and like, wow, I didn't, I totally missed that thing. And that's, that's, that's really brilliant. That's when movies are at their best, you know, like the brilliant films are, are, are right there. And it's like, wow, isn't that crazy that that person made that with a team of people? It's like the idea that the movies get made it and, and at all is, is brilliant to me. And, but the yeah. idea that they're good, is like, this is insane. I can't believe that this is actually has happened. Having worked on movies and sets and all that stuff, it's like, I can't believe that you can you can make something great out of this because it's like it's it's madness. It's pure madness. Yeah, it um, really is. And and honestly, after like working on as many films as I, I don't know, I've, I've probably worked on like, I don't know, 19 or 20 different film projects over the last couple of years and only a few of them come out. And every time it feels like a miracle. I'm always surprised when it, you know, when an IMDb credit pops up or or something like that. And it's, I try and remember that too. When I'm ever, I'm like too critical about movies I go see. I'm like, well, it's still kind of amazing that this actually yes. made it to theaters and like people get to spend, you know, 10 bucks and go see it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then not just or that it's I, like the fact that we're having this conversation about heat. I'm sure there's hundreds of other people are having this very similar conversation about it, you know, in a certain way, mm-hmm. whether they're at their office or their, you know, whatever. Um, and that, 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 that it's transcending time, that it's continual and that it, it experience like people are still experiencing on different levels, which I think is really great, too. Yeah. Is there a director that you would love to work with who would, and who would it be? Oh, man. Um David Fincher would be awesome to work with. Fincher's is great. Yeah. Um, and Christopher Nolan, I, I honestly love pretty much everything that he does. I think he's, oh, Denis Villeneuve would be, hmm. his his work's really great too. He's doing Dune. Yeah. Oh, is he? Yeah. I didn't hear this. Yeah, he's been, he's been, um, I think Principal Photography just started actually on it. Are we in February oh. yet? No, we're in January. So I think it's starting next month. So yeah, they they're probably they're probably done wrapped with the script in there in, in uh, production right now. Okay, yeah. Denny's I'm, a I'm, yeah, he's a he's, he's, he's one of those guys. Yeah. yeah, the arrival was or arrival was such an amazing film. I thought. Yeah, the brilliant use of music, huh? Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> Johan's score is so and the Max Richter Max piece. Max Richter piece that. exactly. Yeah, and yeah. that the the loop and the hall and everything. It's just like a lot of um a lot of winks and a lot of layers. Um, I read the original book that it was based off of, and I felt like they did such a better job of what the book gave me. The mm. book, the lady was kind of an asshole. She was hard to get into. Oh, really? Book. Yeah, it was weird. It was a lot different. He, Denny and the filmmaker, the creators of that, of Arrival and the film process, they they made uh, Amy Edwards, I think, or Amy Adams. Amy Adams. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's so good. And Yeah, she's great in everything. She's really great. She's great in The Office. She's my favorite in The Office. So The <laughs> <laughs> Office is like my favorite. She's yeah. Jim's girlfriend for a couple episodes. But um, but yeah, she did an amazing job. But she, there was a lot more empathy, and you're pulled into kind of her world a lot better, I think, than the book gave out, which is really interesting. And I felt like, because I got obsessed with that with that. Um, film after I'd watched it because it was just there were so many cool fun layers to it um, and I yeah the cinematography was great and the composition was great and yeah it was really it was really awesome I really appreciate that and it's so cool yeah. like to be that connected with films at that level that big um, that are still being made today I um, mean he's been doing really good yeah yeah Blade Runner was amazing I thought I, I really really liked that film yeah and I was awesome. surprised I didn't think I was gonna like it to be honest but it was amazing yeah. Yeah. It's got some really, um, significant moments. I'm so, um, I'm so in love. I think it's a nostalgia issue I have. And I'm so in love with just the world that Ridley and everybody oh, made yeah. the first yeah. one that I have a real hard time with like any of those things. I'm like, Oh, oh. same with star Wars. I'm like, Ugh, I don't yeah. know. You know? Yeah. So. I, I get that baggage too. Like I, I remember <laughs> the first time seeing the original Blade Runner. I, I guess you could call it a mistake. I, I read the book like the day before. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was like, it's so different from the book. I was like, why did they even bother saying it was, it was based on, yes, but it's still visually like remarkable. And, and, and after I saw it a couple years later and I was just like, okay, this isn't the book, get over it. And then I was like, oh wow, like this is really what Ridley Scott did is really remarkable. Is there a director from the past that's no longer with us that you would have wished you would have worked with? Hmm. Oh man, I'm sure there's somebody. Um, I don't know if he's from the past. I, I there was a director who made a movie called Gattaca. Mm-hmm. I think Andrew, Andrew Nichol. I I don't think I'm pretty sure he's, he's still, still around. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Gattaca's I, great. I yeah. God, Gattaca is like such a like that's I feel like one of the best written stories uh, in a movie I think I've ever seen. It was so. It's really it's good. Such an important message for people to to hear. Especially more now than ever, huh? 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> social yeah, currency and all that bullshit. And individuality and like how that's something you should, you know, cultivate in yourself. And, and yeah, anyway, it's just, yeah, so much of that movie is, is, is really worth spending your time thinking about, I think. It's a beautiful film. I was, because uh, I do these passion projects and sometimes I, I, I put my attention towards something I really appreciate. And Gattaca was a film I was thinking like, hmm, how can I take that world and like evolve it? I don't obviously don't have the actors and stuff, but how can I make an art piece that kind of captures that feeling? That was one of them. So yeah, yeah. I really, I really do appreciate that. And I think that that film has a lot of really great layers and, and, and the art direction and, and stuff is incredible too. Um, just really yeah, it's a special film and like how they used what they used. Um, cause it wasn't a huge budget film too, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, I would have thought you might've mentioned maybe the Coen brothers cause the Coen brothers, but I love like, oh, yeah, I love how great. some films they'll use music, but sometimes they don't like, um, no country for old men had no score, which I was yeah. like brilliant. You know, it was so eerie and I, it, it added to the world, like the wire on HBO doesn't have score and I, I love it. Like it, it works so well for that show. Yes. It's brilliant because it's like, well, life doesn't have a score to it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. I'll walk in the room, my wife's watching like a CSI or one of these shows and they're so heavy handed and they'll put like, it's like the music drops. It's like, you know, like, Oh man. And she hates it. Cause like, I just roll my eyes or like I used to make a bunch of comments and she's like, get out of here, ruin this show for me. <laughs> but I'm like, Oh yeah, here it comes. And then I'm like, Oh, all right. Nice. You know? So yeah, um, that's, I think that's like part of, you just become a little jaded the more you work um, oh, yeah. industry yeah. a little bit. And yeah, that definitely happens. I'm like that with video games now too, where like you can hear the, I'll, I'll hear the middleware. It's the, it's like the software that's used to determine when certain music cues play. Oh. And you can just like hear, and to me, it just sounds like a car, like the mechanics changing and switching. I'm just like, oh my God, it's so predictable. Like <laughs> do something interesting with it. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll have to, that's going to, I'll have to think about that when I'm playing a game next, you know, I go, oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Cause yeah. I thought, I thought, um, inside had a brilliant, brilliant, um, score and totally and, it, and it's brilliant. so and it's interactive in a way that isn't like bad either like it's no. actually it's artistically there's a reason why it's set up the way that it is and it makes sense as you play it and limbo is the same way yes i think that's like a master class in and using uh game audio middleware stuff it's just so layered well done. yeah it's so layered yeah. and so interactive and mm-hmm. like if you paid close attention, I didn't know it, but there's like a, there's an alternate ending secret yeah, ending thing yeah. and like how that kind of goes back to the notes that you hear in a certain part of the game too, which I thought was really brilliant and another layer of just amazingness. Yeah. So good. If you yeah. were to take, um, if you were to only have five albums to listen to for the rest of your life, what would those five albums be? Oh, Hard man. question, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess it depends on the the week really. But um, Max Richter's Infra would definitely be on there. It's a it's an album he wrote for a ballet um, and then put it out as his own solo work. It's it's beautiful. Um, I think Johnny Greenwood's score of the Master might be on oh, there too. So good. That's oh. like one of the best scores. He I mean, is a genius, think. that guy, man. Yeah, he's remarkable. So unique too, and I love that he's such an individual. You know. Yeah. Yeah. He really and it's. And like kind of the path that he took and kind of like what Trent Reznor has, has been doing is it's sort of rare in Hollywood. Um, and I think that's why people connect with it so much, because they're kind of tired of hearing the same stuff over and over again. Oh, I mean, the Hans Zimmer and, boom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is I, I actually really like Zimmer, but like, me too. All, not all, all his work, stuff, but I do appreciate it. 
And then like he's so popular that like everyone just copies him because it's a safe bet. And then it just it's like we're all bombarded with. Well, a lot of times people when they edit things, they'll use his music as temp. And then they're like, oh, we've been hearing this for a thousand times over. We just need the same temp music because we're being triggered by it. You know? Yeah. And he also has, you know, a bunch of companies that like sort of perpetuate that same kind of sound. So oh, yeah, it, yeah he's smart, definitely. man. He's a businessman for like, yeah, because I remember I was working on a project for the UFC and then they're like, oh, Hans is going to score the UFC thing. I was like, oh, cool. And then like he didn't even do it. He had like another team do it. Maybe he oversaw it or something. But I was like, oh, this is weird. This doesn't feel like he put his like his print on it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, OK, well, like he's smart businessman, you know. So, yeah, you know, he definitely has that that going for him, which is, you know, in Hollywood, that's that's worth a lot. Yeah. Um, but to, to keep going, I think um, Jeremy Soule's Skyrim soundtrack, I think oh, would never definitely, heard it. It is so remarkable what he did with that. And it's um, it's almost an all entirely virtual instruments, which is kind of how I compose, too. Um, there is a, a male that? choir that they recorded. Oh, so it's um, I'll try not to get too technical or nerdy, but. Essentially, what you do is you go out or or you have a, a software company record, um, like let's say you wanted to capture a violin and you have a violin player basically play all of the notes that they can play and like you get all the scratches and like all of the, the nuance in there and then you capture all of the intervals between those notes and then, then you have uh, a bunch of files that you can put in a computer and, and re-perform essentially as you would write it. Oh, so interesting. So you're basically... You basically like um, you're you're writing your own notes, but you're using their performance to sort of inform kind of how you put music together. Didn't and, know that because that's probably I, mean, I guess that's what you were using when you were creating um, Beyond the Rainbow. Yeah, that's that's mostly what it is. There's a few wow. things that I layered in that were me performing stuff, but most of it is is uh, is virtual instruments. Because I was going to ask you, I was like, well, this this definitely is not this 100 percent in my mind sounds like it's you went and had an orchestra kind of compose these things. So that's really interesting. That's actually yeah, kind of brilliant. It's, it's amazing what you can do now with. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of like you have to do a lot of programming and it's a lot of uh, like sort of tedium work, but. Um, I don't know. I, I find that for me, it's definitely, it's just become such a great way to get across the, the sound that you hear that you want to, that you want to capture. Yeah, of course. Well, nothing beats that. That was one of my questions too, but sorry, you're saying yeah. this, the Skyrim thing, I'll have to check these out. I'm, I'm putting down yeah. my list of things. Well, I obviously know the master soundtrack and Johnny Greenwood's scores are incredible. Like they're yeah, so good. He, he's, I want to like everything he does. I, I'm going to see immediately. Yeah, Norwegian Wood, I think, is the other one. I think. Oh, yeah, I actually haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen the film, but I've listened to the score yeah. numerous times, too. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And his score for There Will Be Blood is really incredible, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and you can oh, really that, see all the brilliance in, in Radiohead through him, too. You can kind of sense and feel it. Yeah. Obviously, him and Tom working together and the rest of the band, too. So, And their latest albums, too. Like, I just, I love the <laughs> orchestral presence going in there. And I, I know yeah. a lot of that's probably coming from him. And oh, yeah, it just of course. Sounds so good. Oh, he's probably like, okay, well, I've been doing this thing. This sounds really great. So I'm going to add this Radiohead now because it needs it. You know? Yeah. It's, it's not, I'm not just a guitar player anymore. I'm going beyond all that, too. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I think, I, I think you said five albums. So Howard Shore's <laughs> Lord of the Rings would definitely be one, too. Ah, yes. That score is what they did with that is amazing. Pretty crazy that franchise. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Crazy. Took I mean, a 
massive. Took an interesting turn. Um, but yeah, the, <laughs> the, those first three movies are, I think, some of the best like big budget movies we'll probably ever see in our lives. For I adaptation, would. yeah, definitely. It's pretty yeah. insane what they've managed to pull off. Yeah. yeah. And okay, and that would be number five. And there's number five? No, I think you gave me four, but I, I guess it's okay. Oh, that's only four? Yeah. Um, who else would I put on? Uh, man. Notorious B.I.G. or something. Not joking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kendrick Lamar's Damn is pretty good, but I don't, I haven't listened to it enough to like, to put it in a top five. Everybody's um, listened. I don't listen to his music. I don't, I guess I'm just like, so I don't know, like I, I'm such a big, like older hip hop head that I have a whole really hard time sure. listening to anything new. I'm like, yeah. And my friends are like, kind of push it on me. Like, Oh, he's like the new this. I'm like, Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's definitely like the worst way to get for people to try and get me interested in something too is when they yeah. just keep saying how amazing it is and it's just like I just I just flex more and more when I hear that and it makes me same more it ruins it for me because I'm like yeah. no, I know what's amazing to me and I and it's not this. <laughs> <laughs> but if I stumble upon it out of nowhere randomly, I'm like, "Oh, wow, this is really quite great." You know. Yeah. But I think it's also like when people overplay it or they they say that it's like kind of ruins it for me personally unfortunately yeah. and that's a that's the price that people pay when they that's something that out of their control because he's he is not in control of that that's like his music might be brilliant but it's being ruined for me personally by people saying it you know mm. and yeah. forcing me to listen to it when i don't want to because <laughs> i'm like oh man <laughs> yeah. like in public areas and stuff like oh, okay yeah yeah is there a music uh, that you listen to that's outside of um like orchestral instrumental kind of stuff that you enjoy uh, yeah, definitely. It's I've sort of uh, like stopped listening to stuff outside of orchestra a little bit over the past couple of years, but like I still I still love Nine Inch Nails. Like every time they put out a record, I get really excited. Sure, um, I can see you as being like a Tool fan as well. Oh Tool? my god, yeah, Tool is so great. I I wish they would put out their their new record. I kind of like that they're not. Yeah, I like that they yeah. just, and I think that's the brilliance of that band too. I wonder how they're going to do it too, because they're they're really they don't do streaming and. Um, no one buys CDs anymore, really. So I'm kind of curious what they're going to do. Yeah, that w they'll probably set a trend like Radiohead did, you know, like, oh, put the price mm -hmm. on there if you want it, buy it or not, whatever. Yeah, um, that never makes know, sense. Though. Maynard's really smart, and the rest of band members are very smart, too, and they're all artists in themselves, and that's why the art takes so long. And I think one that thing that's really important and special about Maynard, too, because I'm a big fan of him, and I actually had a chance to meet with him, and he's, he's, man, oh, wow. he's, he's, a, he's, he's, <laughs> he's on a whole other level, that guy. He's uh, it's really, uh, I really appreciate people like him, because he's so eccentric and such an artist himself. Totally. But I think a lot of it is he's gone through a lot of pain in his life, and he's used he used tool as a channel to get the negativity out in a negative way but i don't like seeing who he is now and kind of um seeing him from afar as he's he's not a person struggling with these these pains anymore he's found like a balance within himself and a and a, and a rhythm in life that he's enjoying and i can't imagine to go and tour and do this and pull this pain back and talk about his mom and all these things and his religion issues and stuff like like that's that's got to be really a horrible experience you know like you can't yeah. enjoy that and to to put it out there and to be at that level because if let's admit if you if you're a tool fan you know what he's doing he's putting everything he has when he's screaming you know like and maynard is a freaking savage on the microphone yeah, and you can hear it too like it's just oh, I, like there's a song he did with the deftones i remember too yeah. the yeah, passenger yeah every time i hear his voice i'm like mm -hmm. i don't know i've never heard anyone before or since do something like that it, that is like that comes from some place that not many people go to 
it's a very vulnerable place, but it's mm. a very masculine and, and a very strong place. And I think mm. that's what makes the brilliance of their work so great too. But I thought, I thought you would probably be like be a tool fan because being that, oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, like from when I, Oh, you're into you know astrophysics and all that stuff. Yeah. It can't make sense. Cause like tool is very mathematical too, which is like the rhythm section and stuff like Danny Carey is so impressive. Yeah, they really are. And it's like they almost are like some of their songs have almost like a classical like level of music theory stuff going on, which I really dig. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Danny is a studio drummer in the beginning, I think. And then mm-hmm. obviously Tool took off and then there you go. Um, but yeah, everything, even like um, Justin, the bass player, he approaches um, his riffs like in a completely different way, too, which I think is harkens back to like classical music as well, too, because a lot of times with classical it takes you in this like weird kind of what the heck and then it brings it back and you're like oh okay it makes sense now and like if you really pay attention to listen to like mozart's work it's the brilliance of it is how chaotic it can get you know yeah and then how it comes and, back you're like whoa that's crazy <laughs> like yeah and then and the thing too about mozart i think is so great is like he could do all of those weird things and still keep it centered and he also like he could write a like a tune like he knew how to write something that people actually want to hear too um so it wasn't just about you know like mathematical masturbation for him it was um he he knew how to reach people really really well yes and manipulate them and move them and and push them and Amadeus is a brilliant film if you haven't seen that it's brilliant and like that's anything like what his life was like like fuck dude (laughs) what a crazy (laughs) life man what a crazy life And, and how appreciative I am that somebody like him existed because it's like wow we wouldn't have that kind of work with us, you know, to this day, it's like, it's so good. It's so, so good. Yeah. What, what's a, what's a normal day like for you? Like what is uh or like a, like a, a dream day for like, for you? Dream day. Um, yeah. you know, it's, I feel like emails are getting more and more in the way and like doing social media stuff. So I've been trying to keep a lot of that out. What I, what I spend most of my time doing is, um, just like doing a little bit at a time, you know, like, starting with an idea, starting with an emotion, and then trying to capture that in a little bit of music and then doing the same thing the next day after that and the next day after that. And Groundhog's Day then. Yeah, a little bit, but like, it's not as, I don't mean to make it sound as monotonous as that because it really is an enjoyable experience. Um, I'm the same way. So I, 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 I love that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, you know, it's about, um, I don't know. You, you have to do the business stuff too. Like you have to reach out to people and, and try and find work. And I'm sort of in this nice position right now where, uh, music licensing for me has mostly been a passive income. So I don't have to like struggle and like sweat to crank stuff out as fast as maybe, uh, other media composers do. Sure. Um, but you know, on films, there's always short deadlines and stuff, which that's always, oh yeah, it's like, there's no (laughs) getting around it. And there's, there is a film that I was supposed to be working on uh, through Christmas and we were supposed to be done like, I think like yesterday or tomorrow. And I, I didn't hear anything from him for like a week and a half or two weeks. And I just know I'm going to get like a panicked email in two days Yeah, and they're be like, Hey, we need this thing like Smart. right now. And it happens every freaking project. Every time it's poor management. I hate it. I cannot yeah. stand it. Yeah. And I, I definitely like, I put things in my contracts to help avoid that because I get anxious and I hate it. So I'm like, I always say like, oh, if you pass this date or you do this kind of stuff, then I'm just going to charge you for it. So you got to yeah. take you got to take me seriously, and I'll take you seriously. That's a good way to to put it. I I, I definitely need to get better about contract stuff. Like, um, just my my, you. Fr- 
My friend Will was telling me something funny. Like he goes, if you read my contract, you can just see like all the scars from people treating me like shit for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that's in. what a good contract does. It, but it's there to protect both people, you know, and it's like, mm -hmm. hey, like if you do this to me, uh, this is what you pay for, you know, and I always it's like passing the responsibility ball basically is what I do. So it's like, yeah, respect me in my time and don't just drop the ball on me and shit happens. Life happens. Movie productions are insane. They're wild and they're crazy and everything's dynamically moving at the same time. You're trying to get this ship and this vessel moving to the right space. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's contracts will usually save you, especially if you're an outside contractor, not on location, not in the same room as these people. You're going to be like, they're, they're going to be in their little world. And then all of a sudden, boom, like you're going to be like, you're going to be totally fucked, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and their anxieties are different and their, their interests and, you know, the project are so different and you have to like constantly realign those two together. And it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, but it comes together though. I have a strategy if you'd like to, that it's been working for me with emails if, and this is something. Please. Yeah. Tell me. So what I do, and, and there's something that I do that's probably different from a lot of people, but my wife is actually my producer. So she helps shield me from a lot of things. So I have that amazing uh, thing in my life, amazing uh, attribute in my life. So that I'm really blessed that she helps me. But if you don't have this, if you don't have a partner that's helping you with this, there's a technique that I use is that yes, emails come in at all times, comments come in at all times. Everybody's on their own time schedule and it's just, you get berated. So the strategy I use is if you use like Google or Gmail or anything like that, do you use that? I do. Yeah. So you can set up like a thing where you can just tag um, emails. So what yeah. I done, I learned this strategy from my friend, Jessica Hish, who's awesome. And she was like, because I was telling her about how many emails I get, all this stuff was happening. I would get like hundreds. I'd get so many emails. And I and I felt like I always had to respond because it's just, you don't want to just not respond to people. So, um, and that would give me anxiety every day and I'd have to break what I was doing and do that. So anyways, um, you get an email and you look at the title or whatever and you go, okay, this goes here. And you just tag it and mark it and then send it off and then you just keep it. Um, you tally it up for like the end of the week, basically. Um, and then like on Fridays, I spend about an hour responding to emails on Fridays. I, and another thing that this does is people will realize that your time is precious and you don't just respond instantaneously unless it's like a client, you know? Yeah. It creates yeah. a good rhythm, you know, cause it's like, Oh, I'll respond every week, you know? Yeah. It's like, if you establish that, I could see that because then you're setting yourself up for like, that's the norm. Yes. That's, yeah. that's a good idea, man. That's it really works good brilliantly. And, and hats off to Jessica for teaching me that. And I've been slowly perfecting it myself. So, and it, like my wife actually safeguards in. So I have a certain email that everybody that I don't know can interact with. And that goes to her. And then she will filter out like, is this important for him to listen or read to? Is it not, mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever. And then whatever I get through her, I answer on Fridays and I just blast through it. Some days are more intense than others and some are not. And then if I don't get to all of them, um, yeah, I just go on to Saturday. I put it on Saturday too. And I go through and stuff too. And, um, and then it works really good too, because there's just an onslaught, you know? So, yeah. And it's not this thing hanging over your head probably. Like no, because you know, Friday you're going to do it, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a good idea, man. I should, I'm going to, I think I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah. Give it a try. I think it would probably help out a lot. Um, to wrap up our podcast, it's been brilliant, by the way. I really appreciate our talk. It's really flows yeah. amazingly great. I love the, my favorite episodes are ones we just kind of go and we've never talked before or met or we're not in person. So it's kind of a miracle that it actually has been working out. <laughs> the way no, that it is. It's, it's great, man. I honestly, I, I was like really nervous cause I, I haven't done like anything. I feel like publicly like this in a while. And I, your, your podcast is so good that I was like, it would be really like almost rude <laughs> to oh, not. Well, I appreciate not you coming it, on. So 
Well, I appreciate yeah. it. And you're, you're natural at it. So I really appreciate oh, that. Thanks. Is there, what do you have going on in the future? What are you, what are your goals? I mean, I know we, we just turned a page, uh, we're on this, um, year of 2019 this is what we marked it to be. Is mm. there, what's on your agenda? Do you do, do you do like new year's things or do you follow lists? Do you have a goal? Do you have something that you want to obtain this year? You know, I, I usually, um, I usually don't, but like a couple friends have been asking me about this the last week. And after talking about it with, uh, my friend John and Brendan, I kind of realized that I definitely like less social media this year is, would be more ideal. And then also just in terms of like, you know, being a human being, I, I want to try really hard to be more emotionally available to friends and family. Wow. And I, I think being so closed off all the time, I've like sort of, I don't know, like save it for music or like save it for career stuff. And, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I see myself like putting myself in a box a little bit and I'd like to, I'd like to be more available for people. Mm, that's beautiful. That's, yeah. that's really beautiful. And that's so cool that you can see that too. I think a lot of us that are listening to, and myself included is like, we're in denial that we are like that. Cause we, as a creative person, you're so insular and you're so selfish, you know, mm-hmm. cause you're just kind of like, Oh, I'm in my own world and live like screw everything else. Cause I'm just in my creative bubble, you know? And so yeah. much of the, of your life is going to be spent doing that. If you're really a passionate solo creative person. Um, but being emotionally aware and available for those that you love is, man, it's tough, you know, cause yeah, uh, not all the times I want to be with people. I just don't, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. I just want to be alone creating. I'm like happiest in that world, <laughs> but yeah. that's not good for them, you know, cause they want to be around you cause they love you and they appreciate you, you know? Yeah. And, and once you realize that too, like I, my thing used to be like, I always thought people were just trying to like, like they had some angle or like, I, I don't know, that's probably says more about me than people, but like. Sure see it more as like a manipulative thing where now it's like most of the people that I have in my life, like they just care and they want to like, they want to be as available as I want to be with them. And so it's making room for that, I think is, should be, (laughs) should be like as important as anything else I do in the day. Hmm. That's brilliant though. I love that you're you're thinking about that. That's something I was thinking about too. So it's cool um, to hear that. And also the social media thing, I'm curious as to like what you're thinking in, in regards to like steps because it's like one thing to say it, but it's such an abstraction. So it's always about like actions, you know, like an abstraction turned to actions that then turned to a reality. And this yeah. is something I'm considering too, because I find that there's like this weird unhealthy feedback loop that I put myself through and like on Instagram, because it's like the algorithm's so brilliant and how it keeps me in that little like ecosystem, you know, because it's like yeah. a visual feed and you're just kind of like, oh, what's this and what's that? And you're sending links and you're laughing and you're, or you're looking at art and you're getting inspired, but it's so small, you <laughs> Um, yeah, but it keeps you in that feedback loop. And I'm like, I'm sitting there going, yeah, this is probably really unhealthy. I should probably stop doing this. And I should ask, ask myself why I'm spending time, um, abundantly here. Um, so what are you thinking about like actions that will help you kind of steer clear or pull yourself away from it? Well, like one of the things I, I actually started doing this around Christmas and I just deleted all the apps off my phone. So there's Smart. just no way my phone can, can access it, but I do keep, I keep messenger, which is the Facebook uh, messenger thing. Yeah. I keep that available because every once in a while there'll be a director or a game developer, someone who reaches out on there. And I want to make sure that I can just get the message and not have to like see my news feed or, or scroll through that nightmare just to, to be available for, for work. Sure. Uh, so that, and like I, I went through recently and changed all my browser tabs to 
like the actual parts of websites I want to go to. So now instead of just like clicking on YouTube, like my my link will send me to the subscriptions. So it's only the stuff that I really care about seeing. And mm. um, I think that will, has, I've already noticed a difference like in the last week, how much that's helped. Um, that's great. Because I feel like YouTube is like, just like that Instagram thing. You just, Oof. it's so easy to get sucked in and they're so clever. Um, the algorithms are at, at getting you to stay there. And sometimes it feels like I'm just like, I'm being fed McDonald's over and over again. And it's not yes. really what I want, but it tastes really good. Yes. And it's the same kind of thing. And so trying to eliminate anytime I get that, like that sense that like someone's trying to, to give me sweets, but not like nourish me. <laughs> it's like, that's the, that's the impulse to change. Yes, so. absolutely. That's awesome. I appreciate that. And that's a, that's definitely great advice. And I did, I did the same thing. I removed all Facebook stuff from my phone. I removed Twitter from my phone. The only thing yeah. I have on there is Instagram now. And I'm even considering removing that. It's just a problem is I've had, I have an audience there and it's like, how do I communicate? There's a lot of good people there still, but I'm like, yeah. Ah. And it's such a mobile thing. I'm like, oh, damn it. You know, I can't put it on my desktop and just do interact with it that way. Um, cause I, I think there's forms that you can, pro you can post things to it from, your computer, but I have to find out how to do that. So, but yeah. I would like to just keep it all on the computer off of my phone. Cause the phone is the thing that's always with me, but at the same time, it's just, if I don't have the discipline not to use it, then it's my problem. So it's a bigger problem than, than anything else that I have. I lack yeah. the discipline, you know? Yeah. You know, it sort of reminds me of like smoking. Like I used to smoke and you know, like they could have done everything to make it illegal and people like me still would have lined up to like be outside buying like whatever the new cool cigarette was or whatever. Sure. Because you know, you're addicted and it's good that you can see that though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope, I hope more and more people can. It's, I feel like it's getting harder to recognize those things. I think that but, these conversations are really important and they're going to reach the right people. And I'm hearing this a lot from a lot of people that they're yeah. saying, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get off social media. I'm going to start to weed it out a little bit more for my life. I hear that yeah. a lot. And I think that that's such a healthy uh, approach because I think it honestly does nothing really good for you. You know, yeah. it doesn't, it makes you anxious. It makes you um, jealous. It makes you um, a lot of times it just makes you question who you are um, in a bad way. And it puts you yeah. in this feedback loop where you're just, you're not necessarily being true to yourself, you know, and it's a big social problem, big social problem. And like one of the things uh, I started thinking about with Facebook lately, too, that's kind of terrifying is eventually they're going to go the way of MySpace, too. It might be a while, but they're going to go through that same thing. And what's weird and creepy about them is they have so much information on all of us. Yeah. They have all these psych profiles that they're still going to be very valuable for a long time, yeah. um, even if no one's using the platform. It's an oil spill, man. Yeah. And it's really so it's I feel like the the quicker you can break free of that is 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 better for you and better for your friends and family. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> and they're using all that information and they're selling it to people to against yeah. your will because yeah. data, data crime, man, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should definitely end this on some sort of positive note because that was, yeah, sorry, was sad. Totally no, no, no. Well, it's reality, you know, so it's, yeah. but, but, um, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some more music from you. Do you have something that is coming out in the near future? Um, I do. I, I think the, the medieval stuff I was talking about earlier up is probably going to be done here in a few weeks and then, uh, we'll mix it and then it'll be ready. Awesome. But there's, there's a giant project I'm actually working on right now, but I, I, I wish I could talk about it, but I can't cause I'm under NDA. Sure. And, but it's, it's the biggest project I've ever been asked to be part of. And I'm doing some like synth design and musical sound design stuff that 
has been really, really uh, challenging, but also it's just kind of cool to be part of a huge team doing something. That's not something I'm used to. Good for you. So, that sounds awesome. And yeah. we can, we, we, uh, fans and myself and everybody can keep up with what you're doing via Bandcamp. Is that the best way? You can do Bandcamp. It's probably, my website is like the thing that I probably update and take care of the most. So okay. that would definitely be, and Instagram is probably the last one that I'm still spending a lot of time on right now too. Gotcha. KylePreston.com. So, dot com. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have links too in the show notes. So if you're, so if you're interested in, in checking it out, so your website's where we go to keep up to date on everything too. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much, Kyle. I really appreciate your time and coming on the show. It's been uh, amazing getting to know you a little bit further and see what you align with. And it's cool to kind of see your journey and where you've come from and where you're going with it and all that stuff. So yeah, thank you. You too, Ash, man. I, I appreciate you having me on, man. And there it is, everyone. Big thank yous to Kyle for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 196. You can also find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. So hopefully this episode inspired you. Go out there, be powerful, everybody. Have an amazing day. Be powerful, be prolific. Peace out, everyone.